76 of Ribbon of Memes, a special festive edition. Um, now, we usually start the podcast with a, a quote or something from the film. I, 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 I can't find a single quotable line from the film we've just watched. I mean, I remember every single detail, um, but it's pretty obvious the problems of a guy in a podcast don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. So instead, I've rounded up the usual suspects and I'm going to carry on our beautiful friendship um so gentlemen you know what i want to hear pod me pod me as if it was the last time i I feel all right (laughs) how much of a pause should i leave before you can fix this in post (laughs) that is the the sound of um the um uh, uh uh Usual suspects, let's face it. <laughs> the usual suspects. This is going so many. Um, to uh, the podcast, this is Roger and John. I am Nick, and we are taking a break from our usual linear sequence of going through the years. We are returning to the dark days of 1942, and we have been watching Michael Curtis's... If We, we often say the director first... But I'm not sure it was an auteur film in this case. Um, mm. We'll come back mm. to that. Opinion differs. This is Casablanca, one of the greatest love films of all time, and certainly one of the inspirations for me wanting to do this podcast. I may yeah, actually I argue agree. with you there, but we'll come back to that too. Or oh, do you and know of other inspirations? <laughs> or was it not very loved? Um, a gentleman, uh, were you aware of this film before we watched it? Were you fans? Uh, well, let's see. I've got a framed poster of uh, the movie in my living room for many years. <laughs> um, what if, I mean, it's it's only Bogart, isn't it? Sorry, did I say only Bogart? It's only Bogart and Claude Rains and Ingrid Bergman and Paul Heinrich and etc. 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 Conrad Fade. Yeah, quite a, quite a few. People, so and, yeah, and, I think and it's for people a wonderful. Who have not film. listened to our airplane episode. Why not? It, it's really quite good. Uh, but we we welcome back uh, John Hancock. Thank you. It's always, as I say, every single time I'm back, it's always a pleasure to return. Um, I know I've only this is the first time I've come yeah, back. Yeah, we'll, I, I figure if you ever go into syndication, then they might be out of order. So we we do yeah, not well, judge people for listening to, to them that. out of order. They're, they're just wrong. That's all. Well, I think I with anyway. <laughs> anyway, the film Casablanca, which is pretty much contemporaneous to its release. Well, it, it, it's slightly before Pearl Harbor. America is still neutral, but but the it setting is definitely conce- World War Two that you know about because it's happening all around you. Yes, and uh, it was conceived and written during the war, um, yep. and filmed and released during the war. Um, I don't know if America very shortly after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, America weren't neutral when it came. Oh, actually, I have a fit. There is a story isn't there? that the the, uh, the well, film they yeah. bought a play. Yeah, the, the play Everybody was written in '38, um, which was about the perils of Nazi Nazism, 
um, and they bought it like the week before Pearl Harbor. It was an unproduced play as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's something never been that you know, it had never actually been staged. Okay, so they started working on it in '38. Uh, this is uh, everybody comes to Rick's by, by uh, and his Mark. wife Joan Allison. Joan Allison, yeah. his first wife. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly different. It's about two Americans in Casablanca for a start. Were they in Casablanca? Was it set in Casablanca? Oh, it is in Casablanca. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose they. I'll just. There, there are some differences. We'll come back to that. I th- uh, but yeah, they. So Warner's bought this up, an unproduced play, for mm-hmm. quite a lot of money. Um, More than they bought twenty um, grand, actually, yeah. which know, was a lot of money Maltese, at the time. They bought the Maltese Falcon for eight grand, so Ooh. they must have liked it a bit. Actually, but, let me just throw a quick question at you. You're talking about money. Who do you think is the highest paid of the build actors in this film? Uh, I know Paul Paul Heinrich thought thought he should be, but I don't know if he was. Well, you've got. Well, he's got top billing with Bogart and Bergman, hasn't he? Third billing, but and then you've billing. got second billing for people like Claude Rains and Conrad Veidt and so forth. Uh, Sydney Green Street. Uh, it's actually Conrad Veidt. He and it's his last film, rather sadly, but he was um, by far the most expensive actor in here. Well, he was. Um, so he's the guy who plays Major Strauss. Strasser. Yeah. Stress. Yeah, he um, is basically the the. He's not just playing, you know, a German character. He's the Nazi. He is. He is very yeah. much, um, you know, third Reich all the way. Now he's, uh, uh, cause if, he was if anybody here was typecast, the... it's probably him. He did. He did a lot of Nazi roles. He it's did, and it's a huge shame. Far from it. He and his Jewish wife left Germany in 1933. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. he's the, the lead actor in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I uh, yes, yeah, he was. And um, The Man Who Laughs, which is the inspiration oh. for the visuals of the Joker. Uh, he was, I mean, he was huge. He was absolutely huge in um, in Germany and so on. Um, and he was it, it's not just... He didn't agree with the Nazis. He he was really active in not agreeing with the Nazis, anti-fascist and he had to leave. And in fact, Paul Heinrich would never have been in um, a film like this. He'd never probably been in an American film at all, had it not been for uh, Conrad Veidt standing up and vouching for him when they were working in um, uh, in Britain, because. Paul Heinrich is uh, he's Austrian, I think, mm-hmm. and his, his actual name. I made a note of his actual name. Did anyone else? No, I didn't. What's his actual name? Paul, uh, forgive the accent, but Paul George Julius Freiherr von Heinrich Ritter von Vassel Waldinger. Um, oh, that is a Pablo Picasso or Paul Heinrich. <laughs> and he was uh, he was basically an, an undesirable enemy alien, as far as the Brits were concerned, when war broke out. And it was Conrad Veidt who said, "No, he's a you know I can vouch for him. He is not a Nazi, and uh, and that so though he wasn't kicked out of the country or thrown in an internment camp." Flipping out. So, so there's, a, there's a bit of history to some of these people. Now, Casablanca. Uh, the, the brief summary of the plot for those who need it is that this is uh, a, a, a port in North Africa in Vichy-controlled um, Morocco. Vichy uh, being the uh, the French government. Uh, the French collaborative government with the Nazi regime, so basically the Nazi puppet regime of France, um, and the MacGuffin, 
which never, I believe, actually existed in history, is that the that Casablanca is used as a port to then go on to Lisbon and then from there to America. So Lisbon and Portugal, therefore neutral, and therefore still able, able to travel from there to, to other things. places. Yeah, but so to get a, out. You, you couldn't just fly on. Transits and uh, the MacGuffin in this film is two letters of transit have been presumably taken from some murdered uh, Nazi officials on a train, um, and they are blank checks. Basically, anyone who's got them can put their own name in and get out of Casablanca. And yeah, a, a, they... a little bit of uh, detail error here. They are they are quite clearly stated as being signed by General de Gaulle. <laughs> okay. would not really have had any authority in this matter being the leader of the free french but, yes um but Look, also... come on rick signs the uh, the things in his in his bar as okay rick across the sort of <laughs> tabs and so on so I, I think we can let them be free and easy with it well uh, realistic or not because i don't think um well no, the whole letter of transit and casablanca yeah, and getting out was... of the book in fact the whole way casablanca looks total copies <laughs> yes apparently just it's... just forget that it, it doesn't really matter. It's yeah. a good MacGuffin. These, uh, to cut some... Well, m- m- most people, of course, are, are waiting for exit visas and paying for them most by one means yes. or another. Um, but in this case, uh, the letter of transit is more valuable because it will apply to anybody, even somebody the Nazis have decided, well, no, you're actually a criminal or whatever. Which uh, does stretch credulity, if you think about it, a little Nazis bit. Nazis well known for their respect for, for law and uh, particularly other people's but that is, law. They are good at their paperwork. That is something that's that's very much played on here uh, when you get to the characters of the, the Prefect of Police and Major Strasser who arrives during the film. He isn't sort of uh, already established there. Well, it's the, this is actually supposed to be France. Yes. And the Germans are there, but it's not, you know, a German occupied state it's and there is a, a sort of an advisory capacity yeah, isn't it? yeah except they're really they're obviously in charge but they can't yeah. at this stage quite push it to being fully in control and, and doing what they want there's or at least a sort they of could, pretense. But there would be a huge political cost involved which maybe they're not willing to pay yeah you just yeah, before they can on. quite do this i mean they've already rolled into paris you know uh, 18 months before this film takes place so it's not like France is a free place but that tension of the Germans can't just do what they want the Germans aren't completely in charge plays into particularly the most probably the most famous um, and influential scene in the middle of the film here the Marseillaise scene which I'm Hmm. sure we'll get to Um, and it's sort of uh, there is a bit of back and forth and particularly with the character of the, the prefect of police you know he's a, he's collaborating. There's absolutely no doubt yes. he's collaborating. He's he's killing people for the Nazis. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, at least one person. Until um, he gets other people to do the actual murdering. To be yes, yes. Well, he's too he's too busy basically. Uh, well, effectively raping people, but um, they tone that yep. down. Yeah. Altogether, well, not, was... a, not necessarily a fabulous guy, but also <laughs> <No>. <laughs> also not a Nazi. <laughs> not a Nazi, which is the kindest thing you could say of it. Um, well, that. I, it's worth uh, dwelling on Renault. Renault is my favourite character in the film. He has all the best lines that are... He's got the funniest lines, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and it, that's something worth saying about Casablanca. For a war film and for a, a heavy romantic... It's not really a war film, is it? It's got a war I, well, ah, that was a point I was going to bring up. If I may just throw it in here. I think it's yes. a war film. The war is being fought in Rick's Café. It's another okay. front. Mm. 
and it's the it's the thing the back and forth between America is is this sort of far you know you will sail into the west America is freedom <laughs> yes. France sort of represents freedom but it's it's under the thumb and there's a tipping of balance of where things are going to go in the relationships and in the war and well, that's, that's what we're focusing on in this cafe because we have Rick who is completely neutral at the start of the film uh, basically comes out for the allies towards the end of the film and whether he's supposed to represent... I don't want to read too much into well, it. Well, yeah, and check the production dates. This this is all, as we said, post-Pearl Harbour, but I, I definitely thought there were a few lines which were along the lines of, yeah, come on, America, you've got to wake up and join this fight now. Mm. Well, there are. I'm going to throw in a conspiracy line that Casablanca is, of course, um, uh, Spanish for White House, isn't it? Yeah, I, I saw some stuff uh, people, uh, people talking about Roosevelt, and it, I think this misunderstands Roosevelt. Um, okay, slight, slight divergence into history corner here. He was personally always very much in favour of America. Oh, he wanted the war. to be in the war. Yes. Um, the reason that it didn't happen was his domestic political situation. You basically got a large con- uh, tranche of the Senate and House, mostly on the Republican side, but not exclusively. Uh, who were isolationists? You know, we we've been in one war. We don't mm-hmm. want to send our boys to die overseas all over again. Well, this was back in the days when American foreign policy was basically isolationist, which is hard to remember now. As long as it's not in South policy. America, which is ours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Anyway, uh, real history, uh, maybe not. Uh, but that's a good point that it's maybe a proxy war or a yeah. cold war or some kind. Yeah, but it, it's not a. There's very little gun violence or anything. There is some, of course, but it, it's not a... It's, it's sort a... of shocking when it happens, mm. isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, a lot of the violence is off-screen. Well, that opening scene, um, I, I don't know if that's an authentic period poster, but that, that's Marshal Patin saying, I'm, I'm keeping my promises and even other people's, which was a, was a suggestion that, yeah, it, it, it's the resistance that's causing trouble because we are we are getting along with the Germans and they are mm. causing trouble and causing the Germans to retaliate. And a man is shot dead as he tries to run mm-hmm. from being rounded up um, at the foot of that huge sort of uh, mural poster, yeah. isn't he? And that's a, a Vichy France poster then, presumably. Yeah, that, that is Marshal Petain, yeah. the uh, collaborationist leader. Well, so uh, we are introduced briefly to the, the city of Casablanca um, as this kind of free port of entry. It's a lovely sort of opening sequence as well that we see this kind of... It put me in mind of uh, many years later, the, the kind of opening of The Man Who Would Be King, only uh, that, in The Man Who Would Be King, it really does feel like a second unit director went round and filmed things he thought were interesting. But in Casablanca... Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another thing I want to say about Casablanca. The, the other film... There's a film we talked about which we thought was probably the best edited, fastest moving film with very little wasted which was Jaws and I think Casablanca yeah. probably beats it almost there is very little wasted Spielberg time. is a colossal fan of just about every aspect of Casablanca yeah mm-hmm. I, huge huge fan well I think it shows because really here yeah, so the director here was Michael Curtis and mm-hmm. as I sort of alluded to in the intro this is not really an um an era of auteurs. This is right this in is the, the height studio. of the studio, yeah. where there was basically, you know, talk about dream factories, but they were churning these films out. There were about 50 films being produced by Warner Brothers at That's the same time that they were doing this. 
Yeah, they were releasing like one a week, weren't they? Something of that rate of knots. It's incredible. It's interesting you just said about you know these other films. You see, it looks like a second direct, a second unit director has done some stuff that's sort of cobbled together. Yeah. The opening sequence with uh, you know shots of of refugees and all that kind of stuff was in fact the second unit director was Don Siegel, who went on oh, to do really? a lot of Clint Eastwood movies and various bits and pieces. But it doesn't feel like it here. I don't want to diss The Man Who Would Be King, because I love it. But there it really did feel a bit... Uh, almost Tech like on? it was trying to homage this, but doesn't uh, do yeah. it in the same way. Whereas here, it's just... You get this sense of vibrancy vibrancy and excitement. And, and straight away, we're introduced to... You know, we have the great... Uh, Vultures, vultures everywhere scene with the, the pickpocket character. The pickpocket, yeah. Splendid, um, yes. A man who... Um, where was he now? Um... Well, he was, I believe, a... Got his uh, name. He, he had a, uh, an incredibly a long career. Yes. Uh, Kurt Boyce, or Boyce, I think. He was German-Jewish. That's right. In fact, one of the... Uh, the other thing I want to bring... Many things I want to bring about Casablanca is... There's oh, almost... Well, a well over half, three quarters of the cast are... Um, refugees from Europe or immigrants from Europe. Or almost all of the extras. Almost all, and particularly in the scenes with Rick's bar, which brings a new sort of uh, meaning to the Marseillaise scene, which we'll come to, I guess, later. But yeah, there's so many. I think we have two Americans? Well, we have... Uh, well, no, we know, having just before we started recording, established that there is, in fact, in a minor role another American actress. Uh, <laughs> yes. Dooley Wilson's American. Yes. The character Ingrid Bergman was playing was in the play American. But they said, well, why don't don't we actually make her from somewhere else as well? And then it makes it more exotic when she meets uh, Rick in Paris and all that kind of... does the backstory. So I think she's Norwegian in this, although Bergman is Swedish. But I've I've got a feeling... Something Scandinavian at any rate. There's a a reference to her being back in Oslo, I think, at some point. Is there? You've got an awful lot of Austrian and German Jews or people with Jewish connections who just, for some reason, happened to be uh, uh, in America at the time rather than back home. The whole film was uh, set... uh, It wasn't set. It was was filmed in in Burbank, wasn't it? I think it was filmed on the... Yeah, everything is in the studio (coughs) except for the first airport scene. The arrival of Major Strasser is filmed at the local airport, and that's it. And that's one of the reasons why you get to Casablanca's famous perspective trick at the end, because it's all... Some of it's back lot, most of it's studio, and it it looks like an elaborate stage play. And you're in the period as well where you're not far off films being filmed versions of stage plays in many cases. Yeah, but uh, same the, sort of cameras and so. But on the other hand, you don't have the thing that I've certainly seen in early films, where okay, we've got these other places where the cameras are, and we will use these three exactly. places. We, it, it's, yeah, it's if you, if you look at the first Bulldog Drummond, it's terrible for that. They've moved on from that, and in fact, um, the director is particularly known for action movement, following people through a crowd. Then that person goes off, and you've stopped. You're looking at um, Bergman and uh, Bogart at the table, and, but and it, Paris, you've had that yeah, dynamic or, moving. Or yeah. Moving around a window, and, and there's tons well, of pa- interesting. Past the parrot outside the blue parrot, and then through a bit of the bar, and then down to the table. Yeah, yeah, and it's a real parrot, of course, which was apparently uh, a huge thing. It got a real parrot. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a conversation with um, Tina when we were watching this, and we said, it "Doesn't matter if they couldn't get a blue one, though, does it?" <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I wonder if they colorized it blue for the colorized version, which I haven't seen. Uh, but the other th about speaking about the sort of the cinematography, of the, there's tons of interesting kind of shapes and silhouettes. It's almost like a bit noirish. It's, uh, it's very not, noirish. It's not a yeah. noir film well, in that, sensibility. It's got well, some noir sensibilities, actually. I guess Rick is a noir kind of character. I mean, he, um, there, there's a similar thing to he's too optimistic the Maltese Falcon, yeah. you know, that, that he is the one honourable man in the world. Yeah, but here it's not. he's not the only honourable man. I, I, really? I think the plot isn't particularly noir. Well, no, we've got Victor Laszlo, for one thing, who's a paragon <laughs> of humanity, and uh, but... A lot of the scenes are very almost like German impressionist, with the use of color and yeah, shadow and the kind of chiaroscuro effects and so on, lighting. Yeah. Well, and there's so many. I suppose what struck me looking at it this time from a film, it's so many interesting, like fans or uh, uh, Moroccan kind of uh, walls with holes in that. They're yeah, the, the sort or... of pierced screens and also yes. um, kind of solid light shades that have holes pierced rather than yes. being glass or something that throw shapes. There's a, a fabulous bit I noticed that I didn't hadn't really paid attention to before. First time I think um, Rick wanders. We see Rick wander into the Blue Parrot, which yes. we should point out is not Rick's place. It's down. You know, what's over the over the road it's in the lot, I suppose. Um, uh, um, Sydney Green Street's Green character, Street's Signor Ferrari, uh, who that's right. is he's there in his linen suit and his fez. Um, other than that, it's Sydney Green Street. <laughs> he's he's no marvellous. He's not stretching himself, but he doesn't need to because he's Sydney Green Street. Hey, Maltese Falcon was his first movie, you know. Um, he didn't <laughs> yeah, start he didn't acting start in acting films till he was sixty-one. He was he was a stage actor. Um, yep. And he, he was an amazing character actor, but that doesn't mean he was amazing at doing a lot of different characters. Still, <laughs> no, still great. Exactly. But there is a moment in, when he walks through. Sydney Green Street isn't visible at this stage because we're going to move through that um, establishment, a bar, with Rick. And in the background, almost off screen, there's a woman dancing. And the reason that I've missed her is because it's her shadow against the back wall oh, that yeah. you see. And it's beautifully done. But again, it's almost incidental. Some films would have made a big feature of that. Yeah, mm. yeah. But this is going on so often in Casablanca that that it's it's a detail to add something rather than being the focus. It's it's just the film isn't that clumsy. It's not and in a way you're you're right that it is it's kind of a stage play, but it never feels claustrophobic or static or anything like that because it is it's always moving. Like the opening shot of Rick's bar reminded me of the opening in Goodfellas and um, the opening sequence where they go through the battle. It's just, it's so good at establishing location and mood. The other... That's that said, trying to get your head around the layout of Rick's Cafe. Oh, no, <laughs> Cafe Americano. I found a floor plan for it today, but I don't know if it's accurate. I haven't been able to, to time to check. <laughs> in my head, it's basically the same as the Moss Eisley Cantina. <laughs> they're, they're the same. Um, uh, I, that was uh, speaking of cinematography. Uh, the one that really struck me, but I always thought this is the one where Rick's drunk and he's on the table and it's so yeah. dark. And then Ilsa comes in and she's like this light Karen. Mm. And just the use of light and dark in that scene is so good. But do, have you seen when they're in Paris together and as they get closer and closer to being to a couple, it gets darker and darker. They're actually oh, in the light before. Yeah. yeah, but it's after that as well. That happens sort of when they're dancing, and then it goes after that. But it's all changed. And shortly after that, this wonderful Parisian interlude. And I do apologise to anyone attempting to follow the plot and layout and characters of this <laughs> well, film yes, for my discussion. <laughs> this is worse than Airplane. Um, 
And in fact, it's got almost as many brilliant one-liners. Um, but yeah, they, they, the, the lighting is absolutely deliberate. And one yes. thing you can okay. say about the studio system, you know, there are people on loan, there are, like uh, Dooley Wilson was on loan from Paramount, I think, um, and not... Well, really, he's loan. getting his regular pay, and then uh, Warner Brothers get the extra $150 a week or something that he was, that was being paid to have him here. Those There's sorts no of things you look at and think, oh, the studio system is awful. But what it meant was that you'd got an absolutely fully functional filmmaking machine yeah. with people who really knew what they were doing yeah. and had learnt it by doing it. You know, they'd learnt with some of the best. Well, like I say, Don Siegel was a second unit director. He wasn't at this point Don Siegel. He hadn't done Invasion of the Body Snatchers even. That was years later. But this is the sort of place where he learnt to do that. So you've got really good people doing every little bit of it, whether it's costumes or set decoration, whatever, and the other folks could rely on it being done. And that, I think, is one of the, the real keys as to why a film like this can come together as a whole. And you might look at it and think, model of that plane's a bit dodgy, isn't it? Model of the plane doesn't matter. This is not a film about a plane. A plane is landing, fine, we know. We can see yeah. it's a model. Everybody knows that's not a real globe at the beginning, not least because the countries are written on. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. One of the things that struck me in the Paris flashback, you, you've got uh, a shot of them driving together. And as yeah. usual, you know, ev the, in, with the technology of the period, it was really difficult to have a shot of a car with people in it and the background together. So you shoot the car in the studio and you composite on the, the stock footage of the background. Mm. Everybody's used to watching that. But what they do here is fade that stock footage from one background to another. Yes. Uh, when they're on the scene. Yeah. The boat. No, there are two bits of road they're driving through, one town, one country. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. And then oh, they just right. fade across rather than even trying to make it look realistic because, it, you know, to my modern eye, this is one of the most unrealistic things about that style of shooting. You know, here, here is this car mm -hmm. absolutely bracketed, not moving at all. And, and there is the stock footage bouncing around in but, the background. So, yeah. <laughs> but almost yeah. the, um, the whole Paris sequence is, is, it's not a, a dream sequence. It's a memory. It's mm. a sort of a flashback. It doesn't do. matter in a way if it has a different sort of feel to it than the rest of the movie. Oh, sure. Because it, it was and a different time and place. Different. Um, it's, it's, He's it's Richard, like, did you notice, in Paris? Mm -hmm. He's called different in things by everyone. He's got like Boss or Rick or Mr. Rick or... Ricky. Um, uh, Ricky. <laughs> uh, Claude Rains, as, uh, as Captain Renault, calls him Ricky. Oh, my friend. I... Um, uh, we're bouncing around the plot a bit, but I think mm. the Paris sequence is my, insofar as I have a least favourite part, I, I do feel that it, it, it's shorn of the humour and is very heavy on the romance. It's very important. Yeah, it is really important. Um, You've got to understand, I mean, that's that happens at 18, I, I reckon it's 18 months before we see Casablanca, because there's a reference when he's um, drunk in his bar about its December in December 1942 in Casablanca yes. and we know that he's in Paris when the Germans when roll the in Germans and that was yeah. what June-ish 41 so he he goes from being that character to being the Rick who runs Café American and everybody comes to Rick and everybody knows Rick yeah. and Rick is regarded as a neutral character the police you know they'll turn over Rick's but he wanders out so they can do it and they just go in when he's not there and you know there's a relationship that everybody sort of knows where they stand 
Renault is absolutely yes. convinced that you know you've nothing to fear from Rick because, as Rick says at least twice, I stick my neck out for nobody. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does sound like he's trying to convince himself about that though. Well, that's the great thing about Vegas' performance um, that I, he is this. He's a very believable cynic, but you also. Mm. It's a believable switch, and it doesn't even feel like a switch the way he's playing it. That you know it was there. You, well, we, we're also told twice by different people that he has fought for the Allies before. Yes. Well, that's the interesting thing that Renault knows this. And he can't um, go back to America, but nobody knows why. Oh, I hope you've murdered someone. It's the romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Given the period, it could easily be bootlegging. Um. Uh, well, it's a bit late for bootlegging. No, I mean, I mean that could have been why he. Had we don't know how long it. But that, that's the thing. We know in Paris this comes up that you know they don't they don't know each other really. Ilsa Ilsa Lund, the um, Ingrid Bergman character, and uh, Richard Blaine, they meet and fall in love in Paris as the Germans are really bearing down. I mean, it, it it's sort of measured in that se- flashback sequence yeah. as you can hear the guns coming. And the interesting thing is he can identify a gun and how far away it is <laughs> by the sound of it. It's so that tells you something. Is that, but... not, is that not a thing normal people do? <laughs> we know that if you were there, you'd have probably been more precise. He says about 35 miles. Uh, and the type of gun, whereas I'm sure you could have said how many people were manning it. But um, no, it's not. So we know he's got some experience there. We know that he's run guns for people. But apparently, kind of the good guys. And we also know from his conversation with Renault that he's fought in the Spanish Civil uh, yeah. War, but also for the underdog, the losing side, but against the fascists. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. it's sort of. I don't know if it's implied or. I, my assumption is he's in Paris doing something for the resistance, or exactly. Who, this is the thing. At that stage, know, though. even though he's clearly got this murky background, and um, we, d- he, he's got some criminal past, possibly in America. And it's never spelled out, because it doesn't need to be, because it, it keeps him murky. But he's doing something that, while it might not be necessarily legal or even ethical, he's somehow helping a good cause, yeah. you know, yeah. whether it's going to be the Allies or whatever. But she breaks his heart. She le- she disappears, mm-hmm. doesn't turn up at the station, and he has to leave Paris because the Germans are rolling in. He doesn't know what happens to her. Eighteen months later... He's a very he's a, different he's, person, apparently. He's got a very point where hard like, exterior. Well, to the point where Renault... Uh, I, who even... I, what I like about, about Bogie's performance is you can kind of see what Renault... You can see, you know, when Renault says, I believe under under all this, you're a, you're a romantic, you're a sentimentalist. You can see it in his performance, or at least you're very ready to believe it. But mm-hmm. you also... Uh, Renault trusts him anyway, because he can tell that he's he's kind of done. And yeah, and Renault would do him in a heartbeat. I mean, it's not just the start yes. of a beautiful <laughs> friendship. <laughs> Renault is fascinated with Rick. Yes. And he, yeah. he's yeah. quite clearly a man who doesn't get that interested in a lot that isn't wearing a skirt. Yes, that's true. Um, yes. Yeah, it, it was a thing that struck me while I was watching it this time, that I, I could happily watch Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie doing their bits all day. But this, these are basically the same bits that they do in Maltese Falcon. Yeah, they, Peter Laurie is playing the guy who who basically 
um, murdered the couriers or was involved in the murder of the couriers and got the letters of transit. He's brought the MacGuffin into play and gets the line, you despise me, don't you? (laughs) 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 And uh, Rick gets the... He he thinks he's a parasite and and, um, Bogart gets the marvellous line about, I don't mind a parasite, I object to a cut-rate one. (laughs) But but comparing Claude Rains, um, the, the, the first performance that came to mind other than this one for me was the Adventures of Robin Hood from a few years earlier, the Errol Flynn one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the Green, Green Street and Laurie are basically doing the standard Green Street and Laurie things, whereas Claude Rains is playing a very different character. He's a, he was a really wide run. Poor Claude Rains, his breakout role was as the Invisible Man, <laughs> which, is, which is bad luck. But he also, um, I mean, he used to be John Gielgud's tutor at RADA. You know, he's, he's <laughs> an incredibly respected actor. And there's a there's a terrific bit about um, when Major Strasser just says, because Major Strasser t- t- totally misinterprets Rick. He falls for the um, the image. Rick yeah. is sort of coming over as this tough guy as far as he's concerned, that he doesn't think there's much underneath that. Whereas Renault can see quite clearly where that kind of shell and facade is, and that yes. there's much more underneath. And he says, you know, he struck me as a, just a, another blundering American. And Renault says, well, you know, I'd be, I wouldn't be um, too blasé about American blundering. I was with them in 18 when we blundered into Berlin. <laughs> Which I didn't, of course, but... Yeah. <laughs> but Claude, Claude Rains was in the First World War, and in fact, yes. um, he he had almost no vision in one eye, and um, had massive lung damage because of a gas attack. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, he could hardly oh. see. Um, you wouldn't know, would you? That's acting, dear boy. He, he was incredibly. He was hugely respected, and apparently everybody liked him. And he's I read short lovely, and stocky and sort of irresistible. Apparently, I read a lovely anecdote of the filming of Casablanca um, about Claude Rains, where um, uh, the director asked him to come. The scene where he marches into Rick's, uh, saying, um, "We've got to close this place down." Um, he had to do it nine times. Um, and in the end he said um, uh, what do you want from me dear boy and he says I just want you to come in quickly so the next time he comes shooting in on a bicycle (laughs) (laughs) is that quick enough for you um, apparently he and um, Conrad uh, is it Veit Um, well I always thought it was Conrad Veit I believe it's pronounced closer to fight the reason I, I I think this is because there was apparently in their attempt to promote him, Warner Brothers had uh, a sort of slogan of "the women fight over Conrad Veidt." <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. No, but I believe um, it is because I mean it's an it's an Austrian name. It's not going to be Veidt. It would be more of a fair, and I think it's an I sound. So I think it's uh, fight. So it's fight. Um, well, they got on very well um, on the set, apparently, which may be the only people who did. <laughs> but yeah, Paul Henry uh, was notorious for basically. Looking down on everybody else because he was a real actor, unlike these film people. Yeah, he, he was, was also six foot yeah. three and Bogart's five foot eight. So I mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, and Ingrid Bergman was two inches taller than Bogart. So uh, yeah. you know, everybody was looking down on him. Oh, he could do a lot with orange it? crates. They, he, he taught he taught her um, poker between takes though, so they obviously got on a bit better. <laughs> Henry got on with nobody. That's so yeah. that's true. the impression I got looking into this. Yeah, unfor- which is a shame. Um, I'm going to give some shape to it by heading back to the plot, so at least we touch on um, aspects we we might want to. So Um, there are these papers. 
I there are these the tapes which, which come into yeah. the possession of Peter Laurie's character, um, either directly or indirectly. Um, and we are then introduced to Rick and Rick's bar, which we've talked about a little mm-hmm. already. Um, and we see the behind the scenes uh, gambling at Rick's bar. And that's when we have the lovely confrontation between Peter Laurie uh, and Rick and the cut rate parasites. Um, at which point, Peter Laurie gives the MacGuffin to Rick, uh, therefore marking himself as expendable, which is always a mistake uh, when you're in this sort of film. But he only gives it for a very short time. He, yes. he, he's he's clear about it. That it you know, it's only going to be an hour, an hour or so. And Rick is clear about it because he's actually trying to stay out of this sort of thing. Yes. He knows that there's all sorts of crime going on within Rick's Cafe. For a start, absolutely everybody knows that pickpocket. He's at the bar later, and Carl, the waiter, when he bumps oh, into him, immediately scene, checks his pockets <laughs> and goes, oh, I'm okay. So it's not as if they don't know. They, in fact, Lovely know who gag. all of the criminals are. Uh, that actor was also a uh, European refugee, I believe. Yes, he was. Um, he was uh, yeah. But, um, so, we have... Uh, the he was scene, known as uh, Cuddles, apparently, Jack, but Jack Warner, the head of the uh, studio, the actor who played Carl's, um, Carl, he... he Called him Cuddles, so um, isn't that nice? That's a lovely. Did that makes it like a much happier shoot than it it's was. It's hard to say with nicknames, particularly when they're assigned to you by the head of the studio. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, at this point, um, Peter Laurie's character. What's Peter Laurie's character? Ugarte. Ugarte. Signor Ugarte. Signor Ugarte is um, arrested and taken for questioning um, by uh, by Captain Renault. Um, uh, it's unfortunate for Rick because everyone uh, Renault immediately assumes he has got the papers, which he has <laughs> at that point. Um, but he is taken away overnight. Um, and is it that night that Victor Laszlo enters the bar, or is it the next night? Have I missed a part of the plot? Yeah, I, uh, I think it is the same night. I think it's the same night that the we know he's coming because I mean Rick's told and told the name of of this person who is going to be turning up. It says Victor Laszlo, and this kind of starts off the thing of Victor Laszlo almost being a MacGuffin. For... He's almost like Kaiser Sose, isn't he? Yeah, for, for a while. For a while. Yes. And in fact, even after you've met him as a character, he's not really a character. He's not, he's not quite a cipher, but he is almost the cause personified. I, do you know, I almost... I was thinking about um, MacGuffins. Uh, sorry, for MacGuffins are um, Hitchcock's term for the kind of irrelevant thing that doesn't do a lot by itself but drives the plot, like the Ark in Raiders of the Lost Ark, though it does have the a... The suitcase slide. in... Um... Uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction and the whatever the hell's in the back of the car in Repo Man. And... Uh, yes, exactly. So here, of course, the letters transit to the MacGuffin. But Victor Laszlo is not far off being a MacGuffin himself because no. he, he he doesn't do very much. Um, uh, as a character, I think he's he's played of the, the most straightforward of the major characters we meet. Well, he's kind of a paragon of virtue, isn't he? He has no flaws. He finds out... Uh, so, he comes in the best-dressed resistance fighter I've ever seen in an immaculate... Double-breasted, uh, double white suit. or cream oh, suit, isn't it? I mean, whatever you... I, I know Paul Henry um, was apparently a total pain on the set, but I, I think he's great. I, I think as someone worthy of sacrificing for... I think he's really well done here. I, I think he mm. is because he's not. It's not that he doesn't do anything, but he is generous to well, his we, wife. Well, that's the thing. We don't see him being a resistance fighter. The, the scope of the production wouldn't allow for that. No, but we but we do see him as a reasonably pleasant person, at least. Yes. And we we learn as things uh, as time goes on. People have made huge sacrifices for him. 
personally yeah. because of what he can do, what he can represent. And and he's very much it's not him who's going to make the difference on a personal level to how the war's going. But men and men like him, and say men because inevitably in this sort of it is, yes. they are the ones who are inspiring others, who are gathering others. And it turns out even that you know, there's a meeting going to be on later, and Carl is uh, he's Carl, attending yes. the waiter. That you know, he's he's this he's nearly sixty, and he's this this fat amiable waiter, and he's in the resistance. And everyone's you know. in, well, that, I, I suppose there's not a lot of villains in Casablanca. I suppose Regatti is, and the Nazis are, but a lot of the, the entire police force. Well, <laughs> yeah, but they are softened a bit by Captain Renault. Um, yeah, uh, now let, let's. Uh, I should mention in passing our old friend Joseph Breen. Uh, of of well, basically everything that involved Catholic and or decency in in the forties, Joseph Breen was involved in it. Uh, okay, yes, and he he uh, had caused some changes to be made to the scripts. So bear in mind, what we've seen is the post censorship version, which <laughs> ha- yes. in which Renault's trading sex for visas is toned down. Yes. Well, it's all done by... Um, I mean, they don't change the fact that he's doing it. They just make it much more suggestive, it, which leads... Again, they have such... What I love about these kind of motion picture association films is they have such fun playing with it. Um, mm. Like, it leads to the wonderful line of... Um, uh, her, uh, the. We'll talk about it later, I guess. But the we have the the young woman who's having to basically sleep with Captain Renault. Um, but she says, "Oh, my husband was there," which leads to Rick saying, "Oh, he's become very broad-minded, <laughs> Captain <laughs> Renault." It just you know exactly what they're talking about, but they have mm-hmm. fun yeah. dancing around the edges. Of yeah, because she's worried whether you know will Renault keep his word. Clearly, she's she's facing the fact that the, she's got no money, she's got nothing to sell except herself. Yes, but will Captain Renault? Give her the um, the the visa that will let let her and her husband escape, and yes. if so, will that be okay? Will you know? Will that be because she's she's in love with her husband? They've only been the, the kids. They've only been married a little while. And Renault, you know, you get the line from um, from Rick. He always has before. It's like <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. So this is not a one-off. He hasn't spotted this young woman. We are basically told almost outright that. You know, you talk about the studio and the factory system, but so yeah, that's pretty much what Renault's got going. A beautiful well, woman turns fo- up. That's followed up by him saying, um, "I'll but I'll be in later with a blonde, and it may be very happy if she loses." Yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, he's there. So it's it's all turned. It's all the, apparent. Uh, the other thing, good that, acting. the other thing that was dropped out. Um, there, there is. It's never actually explicitly stated that Rick and Ilsa were sleeping together. Uh, yeah. And they, could have, they could have just been dancing in Paris. <laughs> there, there was Apparently. one thing that what they were they were considering possibly um, Laszlo getting killed off during the course Ooh. of the film because so. if he were alive, then they knew that they would not be allowed to show a woman leaving her husband. Well, that, I was going to say there's a lot of talk with Casablanca about the ending, which I guess we'll come to. But yes, if Laszlo's alive via the motion picture rules, she would not be allowed to go off with Rick. Because um, you can't see that happening. Um, ah, but you know, somebody would probably have run up and said, "We've got a telegram for you, Rosalind," and it would turn out that the the marriage has actually it was never valid. <laughs> it was never consummated. <laughs> well, that, um, that's another thing. I, I have not read the play. Uh, it was apparently put on sometime in the, in the nineties, um, but apparently the uh, in the play she does not. It's Lois in the play. She does not marry. Laszlo until after Paris. 
So right. why she leaves them in Paris is completely a mystery there. I also think at the end of the play, uh, Rick gets taken off in chains. Uh, I, I don't think it has the same... Well, the ending of the film, we'll come to when we get to the ending, yeah. I guess. The ending of the film, <laughs> which they were still arguing about while they were shooting it. While they, in literally, the last week. You know, not before they stepped out to, to run the cameras, actually while they were standing there. I think Bogey had a, a stand-up row with uh, Michael Curtis uh, at the end. Or it's he, in well, the he, yeah, he, they'd got a couple of lines that they were going to end it with, and um, the producer got involved, and that never happened. He never attended the set. But, uh, yeah, he had to sort it out. The, this whole shoot for Casablanca was famously... Um, Troubled, I think you would say, and they were rewriting and adding bits and changing things and cutting sections out as it went on. I don't know what this did to Claude Rains because Claude, Claude Rains was famous for turning up knowing everybody's part. And, that <laughs> and been, yeah. it's like, hello, Claude, we'd like to introduce you to hell, your own personal <laughs> hell tailored to everything you hate. I get the impression that Michael Curtis, have you have um, you met Paul? <laughs> Um, uh, I get the impression that Michael Curtis is more of a technical director than an actor's director. I don't. Mm. I don't. I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, uh, he, uh, it's technically very competent. But these are all actors. Uh, Ingrid Bergman was the only one who wasn't really that experienced. I think of the of the main. She cast. she'd done stuff, but no, she was. Well, she's quite a bit younger. Um, uh, without diverting too much into ages of people, because. Uh, it's a thing that you really notice nowadays when people are saying, you know, should Harrison Ford still be getting the girl when he's like 80? Yes. Uh, and the girl is sort of 22. But the difference in ages of the... Uh, I, I started thinking about that. Um, Bergman was 26 r- roughly oh, at the time okay. she filmed this. Now, Bogart was 42, but w- we're told Rick's age because it turns out, in fact, that um, everybody has a dossier on Rick Despite the fact there are all these mysteries about him, both the Germans and Renault—it's possibly the same dossier—but they they sort of pull out the file and and we've got his details. So we know that Rick is actually thirty-seven. So the the difference between them isn't you know enormous. Bogart does frankly not look thirty-seven. He, he doesn't look forty-two. He looks more like fifty. <laughs> no, uh, uh, he... Paul, Paul Heinrich, I think, was about thirty-four. He was quite young. Well, um, I think he was one of the newer actors as well. But well, they, 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 they do make a joke of it, you know, what were you doing ten years ago, getting braces put on my teeth? Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes they, so that's yeah. in the Paris flashback, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Claude Rains, I think, of the ma- major actors is the older one. He's o- he was older than um, Conrad Faith. Really? Years now, older. he looks... He looks good um, for his Ooh. age in that case. Um, but he went on to... He was in Lawrence of Arabia, I think, so he went on the acting for a, a while yet. Um, so, Victor and... Uh, <laughs> going back to the plot, I just don't want to miss any scenes. We're really. still in one. We're yeah. still in, we'll, we'll get through it. We've ended up talking about a lot of this later stuff anyway. But um, Victor and um, his his wife enter the um, enter Rick's Café. Rick's, is it Café American? It's Rick's Café American, yes. That is um, the actual and it's, she is seen and spotted by Rick's... Uh, uh, Rick's piano player, Sam, the famous Sam. Yeah, I mean, it's a story in itself, the casting of the pianist, famous for playing on the piano this particular song, Let's Cast a Musician and a Singer. 
Yes. Unfortunately, he's a drummer who can't play the piano. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he may he as well, a very good singer. He may as well have been wearing boxing gloves when you watch the way he pretends to play. But whereas a, a less confident director might have perhaps just turned the piano maybe six inches so that you couldn't see the hands going up and down on the same place without the fingers moving, um, <laughs> Curtis decided that he would just show... Dooley Wilson <laughs> doing this See, more this than is, once. It's incredible. And again, it doesn't matter. <laughs> this is my go-to for how people play the piano. So now when people actually play the piano correctly, it looks wrong to me. The fact that when they, they hit a high note, like... they move up to the other end of the keyboard. And when it's a low <laughs> note, they move, they're not all in the middle. And they not, they, there's a lot of... Um, verticality to his hands yes, you yeah. don't often see in a, a, a classically trained piano. But you do see in a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, he was he was on loan, I think it was from Paramount. And um, I mean, he's a terrific character, and, and he's again, a continuity link with Paris, because he's yes. there. He's also subject to the... I mean, there aren't many um, uh, non-white people, depending on how you're going to class people as white, because there are quite a lot of people who were Jewish and who were um, various parts of Europe but unfortunately I think the guy you see who's supposed to actually be Moroccan I think he was just, just an American, he wasn't Moroccan okay. and Dooley Wilson uh, is a black actor and there's a very unfortunate point where um, Ilsa says, that boy at the piano, I think I've seen him before and it's like, oh... You, know, I mean, the, the shape. You, you can't say, well, he looks he looks like a boy. No, 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 no. There's only one reason you call a black man boy in that period. There's a, there's the shades of... I mean, also, and it's a very American know, reason. She's not supposed yeah, to be American. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, and he does call Rick boss in a way that is somewhat reminiscent of Tom and Jerry cartoons and portrayals. In other ways, it's a more sympathetic... It's clear that his character is not treated as a second class character by Rick you know he, he's on a profit share yeah and he's on a profit Rick, share in there. Rick lies about how much he's getting to get him more money yeah later on when he's um, when he's doing the deal with Ferrari and the Ferrari says I, you know because he says uh, the deal is that um, uh, Sam always gets 25% and Ferrari says I happen to know he gets 10% but he's worth 25 but he's worth, yes <laughs> yes yeah it's it's not so he is he's sort of respected yeah there's an element of sort of kind of patronizing respect to it or and he, he is, is definitely the hero's cool. sidekick rather than the hero in his own right mm. yes exactly yeah uh, so yeah. he's not really got quite his own character so there are some slightly uh mixed feelings about sam but he, he does he, he's portrayed probably better than a lot of black characters around of the era. Yeah, but unfortunately I think some of it is that he's not given much depth himself. We know yes. that he's fiercely loyal to Rick. He lies to, also, totally unconvincingly about Rick, <laughs> yes. Rick not being... No, he he, oh no, he's, he's not there. No, he isn't coming back tonight. I haven't seen him all day. The worst liar I've ever met. But that's kind of it. He's looking yeah. out. For, he's looking out for Rick in uh, Paris as well. He's getting him on the train because you just you just know Rick would have actually said, "Why hasn't she turned up? I'm going to go and find her," mm-hmm. which means you're going to be stuck with the Germans because they're here. Mm. And who knows what would have happened? The, well, that, I think there's there's hints of uh, basically a master servant relationship, even though it's, it I, isn't. I don't think it. Honestly, I, I didn't quite get that. Well, I, I, feel, I, I thought it was a little it's more. It's not equal. as explicit as that, but I feel he is a character. Who it's is an defined. employer 
employee relationships, certainly. Well, maybe, but it, he's kind of defined by his relationship to Rick in a way that a lot of the, well, I suppose Ilsa is too. Uh, I was going to say, we, of... we don't really get much impression of what Ilsa is like other than in love and desirable. Well, uh, th- this is one of one criticism, uh, which I think I do agree with of Casablanca, that it is a, it's kind of a guy flick, you know, to the point where the one with main a female character, with a bromance, complete with a bromance, you know, goes too far as to say, oh, this is too much for my womanly brain. You're going to have to sort this out, Rick. Yeah, you'll and, have to do the thinking. Yeah. Yes, you'll have to do the thinking for both of us. And I think that is a pretty valid criticism here. It's not just the way she's defined by Rick, um, because she actually says when she'd met Laszlo, I think that was when she it was either back in Oslo or she'd just left Oslo and she was young and she didn't know anything, uh, you know, and, and she learned everything from him. Yes. And it's, so she's essentially defining herself, not just romantically uh, and where she's ended up, but all the bits of her life by these two guys. Yeah. I yeah. A guy I, she knew for, we don't know how long in Paris, but it wasn't very long. And this other fella who um, he's the the Houdini who can escape from concentration camps and he's the orator who can inspire millions but really we don't get to quite see what, what's about him that she's attached to him as she, in the way that she is on a personal level it's uh, hard personal, to grasp no. why mm. she's so attached because it's not just the cause otherwise she'd almost be more prepared to sacrifice him I think well, I wonder. I, I, I do feel like it's um, her relationship with Laszlo is more um, kind of duty. She feels like he's such a good man. That then, yeah, she this is what I mean. With him, um, also, but, of course, she has t- she has made a promise. She is married to him. She, yes, yeah, and she's not going to. And, and I, I think, th- I think that's why Casablanca works because you you see that she feels this duty too. Of course, it's Rick that has to kind of point it out to her that this is you know this is the way it has to be but and we she... should also point out that, that she wasn't having an affair with Rick as such in that she had been told by someone whom, who'd come from the resistance that uh, Victor Laszlo was dead that he yes. died trying to escape from a concentration camp and been shot and there was no reason uh, even if she she thought that particular bit of news was a lie no reason why she would there was no reason to expect that he wasn't already dead anyway, because he'd been in a concentration camp for a year. So yeah, and not many people. She, as far out. as she was well, concerned, at, at this she point was a in widow. the war, they are trying to. Well, yeah, military personnel in uniform—they're trying to treat reasonably well. They still have the resources to do that, but resistance fighters are hell, though. Yeah. It's interesting, even in you know forty-two before the horrors of uh, Auschwitz were, were known to the Allies. You know, we have lines like, um, even Nazis can't kill as quickly as that. You know, it, mm. they, it's not It's not that this was a complete shock to people, how the Nazis behaved. Um, well, I, I've seen a whole ex- exhibition on uh, stuff that was published in America about the extermination camps with dates. And what people, what else people were saying in America? Uh, we don't, we don't know what's going on. The Germans are nice, etc. Okay, yes, yeah. yeah. It was it but much we, earlier we, than people like to admit. Right. We do know, in much the way that we're told about um, Captain Renault's, uh, you know, <laughs> romantic <coughs> activities, <laughs> we're told that the Germans are uh, capable of torture and far more because, in his interview with. Captain Renault, but basically with Major Strasser in Captain Renault's yes. office, uh, like the, 
you've got Strasser saying, well, you know, we could get, uh, we, we could let your wife leave, blah, 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 and you just have to give us the names of the resistance leaders in these various cities. And, and Lazo says, well, if I didn't tell you that in a concentration camp where you had far more persuasive methods at your disposal, what yes. makes you think I'm going to tell you now? And you know that this is a man who is... The only reason he, he was alive for as long as he was in the concentration camp was because he's important. He knows things that they need to know. Yes. You know, he is kind of number six. Um, <laughs> but he'd have been... He'd, eventually, they reached a point saying... They, they would have said, well, he, he's not going to tell us. We might as well kill him. The fact that he's still alive would would then become a liability because he could be... Because then he becomes point. a symbol of uh, as he does yeah. in the film. Yeah. Exactly, that's the thing. You know, he comes in; he's this big symbol. So, um, yeah, he's he's still. We we know the Germans are very, very nasty and can do very nasty things, and we know that Victor Laszlo is this sort of iconic figure. Yeah. Just him turning up at the local uh, meeting of the resistance is going to be a huge deal. Um, because uh, he's uh, asked yes, to attend. He, he hasn't turned up in Casablanca to attend that meeting. He's asked to attend. Um, and, like a guest of, of course, honor. Ilsa doesn't want him to go because he's extremely dangerous. And, of course, they raid that uh, meeting, the Germans, yeah. that night. Um, and, but it's all right, though, because it's one of my uh, favourite little scenes for, for a silly reason. The, her, Ilsa and uh, Laszlo get back to their little room, uh, their apartment, and glance out the window, and they're being followed, of course. They've got a, a police tail behind them. And um, he says, you know, our shadow is still with us, blah, blah, blah. So they turn the light off and say, well, and if, I'll leave in a few minutes. And they're saying, you know, please be careful, please, please be careful. Saying he'll have thought we've retired by now. And I'm always careful. He then proceeds to put on his white hat and in his white double-breasted <laughs> suit, he walks out and we watch him walk straight past the corner where the man who was shadowing him had been a minute before. He's got to well, wear as long as you're careful, white... <laughs> He's an iconic character, though. He's got to wear his white suit because he is uh, this paragon. Um, exactly, he is that but... paragon. But we don't know much about the man inside, mm. and really, or his wife. You well, can he... understand why Rick might have been madly all over in the middle of Paris, which is under bombardment by the Germans. But why is he still so obsessed? There's got to be more than we're actually shown. Yeah, that, I think that's, that's a the shame. thing. That, this is why I, I was going to say that maybe it's not actually one of the great love stories. There is a love story here, and, yes. it, and in, men, in some respects it works very well, but maybe it's just that I'm old and cynical. You know, I, I have had romantic disappointments in my life. Yes. But you know, they, they've had a few weeks, maybe a few months, not significantly more than that. And it has completely broken him. And he's an older, he's... more experienced man. Yeah. Something's really got to him. It's got, she's got to be really special. And we're not we're not allowed to see that because the script doesn't really come through with yeah. it. Yeah. And perhaps which is an where actor, I start she to lose. Express it. I start to lose a bit of sympathy there. Hmm. I, I think his performance yeah I mean his performance is a broken man and you know that I'm thinking of that scene then later on that night where he's he's seen her and he can't deal with it and he's had it out with Sam go on play, he played it for her he played it for me and then he's he's never going to in fact Sam's still there while he's drinking um and that, I, but I, he just he portrays that haunted broken character so well uh, I think for me I don't the film doesn't give you a lot of time to question anything because it just kind of rockets mm. through. Brilliant um, editing, really. It's, it's very well paced. Yeah, because yes. a film of this like... age, 
usually you see a film and you think, oh, they're only like an hour and a half long, yeah. aren't they? But they'll, they'll feel like three hours. This one <laughs> feels more like 45 minutes, yeah, maybe an hour. Yeah. It's it's pacey, it's got quick dialogue. A lot of the dialogue is functional, and some of it's brilliant. Mm. Uh, the, the it's wrong, so maybe, quotable. Maybe yeah. yeah, But yeah. there are other parts, particularly, unfortunately, during the whole romance thing, which, which they're kind of functional, and even perfunctory, and, and they don't give you any real insight. Any insight you're getting tends to be Rick. And yeah, yeah, when he's saying, you know, oh yeah, yeah, you've got this story. I've heard this story before. It, it feels, as as you say, this is just the thing that stock guy is supposed to say in that situation, rather than what Rick would say. I'm not it's sure quite, how, quite how you distinguish what, that, but it's quite hilarious when he's saying, you know, tell tell me this story. Well, it hasn't got an ending yet, and they're thinking, in retrospect, that's quite funny in the middle of Casablanca. Isn't <laughs> yeah, <it?"> yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's a great performance, and I I believe them but I, I think I agree with both of you what draws me to Casa Black when I think about it I don't think of the doomed romance I, 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 I think it is a story about sacrifice and about nobility and patriotism they're not all necessarily virtues that I, I think are uh, perhaps as great as portrayed here but I think uh, the, the romance itself is yeah, one of the less convincing bit, and these are supposed to be. That's interesting. We all feel that because that's these are supposed to be the the iconic cinematic couple, Bergman and uh, and Bogart, um, or one of them. And I, I, I agree. That's practically any first star, really. Well, Bogart and Bacall, <laughs> yeah. really, is, well, is where it because obviously that becomes such well, a they, thing. They are. Uh, they have much more chemistry, I think, Bogart and Bacall on screen, probably and off. Well, obviously, they did all right too. Um, they but... did all right. <laughs> yeah, so well done. Well, done. It, it, it's good, not quite the, to the extent of "Let us have a dirty weekend in Paris and get the BBC to pay for it." <clears throat> City of Death, but I—I <laughs> um, I mean, I am a, a romantic. And there are romantic films that move me, but I—I uh, do, I, I do think this is more of a guy film about um, uh, well don't forget it's got a lot about the sacrifice and I the think... romantic gestures for other people and there's a lot of kindness and heart Rick is despite the fact he sticks his neck out for nobody he's constantly sticking his neck out and yeah. he's dipping into his own pocket as well well, that's when all we the time. The first, yeah. the first crack in his carefully polished, cynical veneer is when he uh, he helps this woman out who's being um, uh, basically used by Renault to get. Yeah. To but the funny thing is, Renault sent her to um, basically have Rick say, "Yeah, he's always kept his word." Said, you know, <laughs> yes. who, who told you to ask me about it? Well, Captain Renault did, because <laughs> Renault knows that Rick will be perfectly honest. Um, I, so, uh, shall I, we get back to the plot a bit? <laughs> well, uh, summarising a little bit, at, at this point, um, Victor Laszlo gets a few scenes to show really what a virtuous man he is. One, because it becomes clear there is something between Rick and Ilsa, and he's not jealous or suspicious, or he's immediately very forgiving and very, I understand, you know, things were tough. I mean, I it's hard not tough. to hate him, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then he gets this fantastic um, scene, you know, with the Germans uh, singing. Um, oh well, yeah, because this takes place while he's attempting to buy the letters of transit, basically. Mm. 
up in uh, Rick's office with Rick. And you know, Rick has basically said, no. He's like, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pay wife. you 100,000 francs, you know. And it, and it's like, you could make it 300,000 300, or 3 million, whatever. It wouldn't make any difference. And seemingly kind of uh, confused and unruffled and not angry with his wife, even though Rick's like, why don't you ask your wife what the problem is? Um, <laughs> he says it a bit better than me, I'll give you that. Um, he, but he comes down, they're coming downstairs after this tense meeting. To well, find... they hear the, they hear some uh, That's right, that's Germans. why they're coming downstairs. The Germans are singing a Reich anthem, I'm not sure, I can't place it. Uh, yeah, th- that, it's actually not the one that was intended. Uh, it, it was meant to be the horse vessel lead, which is, which was very much a Nazi anthem, specifically Nazi. Right. Um, however, it turns out that was still under copyright outside <laughs> Allied countries. And so that, so they I think Allied countries were, were being a little blase about, you know, <laughs> Nazi were... copyright, but outside those countries, yes. Yeah. All yeah. right. Uh, so, so instead they they switched it to the Die Wacht am Rhein, which is, uh, I mean, it, it, it's an eighteen eighteen forty the original poem, I think. Point okay. is, it, it very much pre. It, it's not a specifically Nazi song, which is what they wanted to do. It, it is a patriotic German song. It, well, it's it, but it, it, it wasn't. Much it is. wasn't being sung so much by this date. And it's I mean, not the, played the by Ger- Sam. It's an. It's a German at the piano. And we're presuming that he can play. We can see his hands less. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they haven't said to Sam, play this or whatever. It's very much the Germans have taken over the piano and they're standing in a corner and they're swinging the steins around. They're being Larry tosses in the corner. Exactly. So somebody's this... just, just put ten bucks into the jukebox and it's going to be going all evening. <laughs> yeah. And this is where Victor Laszlo... I mean, it shows us more of Rick as well. They come out onto that nice little balcony at the top yes. of the stairs that Rick's got and they can see the situation... The Germans are there. Everybody is sort of, oh, God. Yeah. Renault, brilliant look and bit of acting from um, Claude Rains is sitting there. He's got his eyes narrowed and he's gl- looking at the Germans and he's hating every moment yes. of the Germans yes. being there. And then he looks across at Rick to see what's going to happen next. But this is when we suddenly see, on a small scale, yeah. what Victor Laszlo is actually all about. Well, this it's a great scene because you do again. It's another again. It's another Laszlo is the perfect man scene, but it's framed so well that you get caught up in it. He immediately comes down and gets the rest of the bar to start singing the Marseillaise. Yeah, and... goes to the orchestra and tells them play the Marseillaise, and they immediately look at Rick. <laughs> yeah, they don't. Yeah, they look at Rick because although he's Victor Laszlo, this is Rick's place. Yeah. Um, who and lets Rick them? Just gives him a nod. Yeah, and then it really—I—I I still now—I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen that scene, but I find it stirring. It's so you know, even yeah. the uh, even the barmaid who's gone over to the enemy, as um, is it uh, <laughs> um, Renault calls it. Um, I think it's Rick actually. Uh, but they—they they all suddenly find their patriotic, and I, I am not a terribly patriotic. But in that time, in that place, in and that... it's a particularly French thing. And of course, there's what the the French Revolution song is supposed to represent. Yes, America and this whole thing about France are there. But look at the, all the different people. The bar, the barman is Russian, and he was actually yes. a Russian actor. Um, yes. You've got people from all over the place, and we actually we we hear the names of quite a few of the the members of staff who only glimpse once or twice. They're just interacting. Gives you a real sense of place and. Almost a family atmosphere with Rick's. 
you yes. can understand why it kind of is this important focal point, not just it's got the biggest area where you can get a drink. Yeah, it's it's a... So Laszlo gets the um the band going, the Spanish woman on guitar finally gets sort of really <laughs> strum out there. everybody starts getting involved and it's a battle of the bands with the Germans and the Germans are losing. Strasser yeah, is there desperately trying to, to you know, thump out the uh, the beat and they get drowned out. Mm. It's a, it's a it's a great scene. Um yeah, I I love the the music it makes you feel very French watching it. <laughs> I mean that's it's 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 really moving and that is on the base. So I think and that is basically where you see okay, this is why Laszlo is who he is. I mean, this is why people follow him because he has no fear. He's just straight down in there and does it. And I And he also knows not to confront the Germans because that wouldn't achieve anything. He doesn't yeah, go he doesn't down just... and tells just what do you think you're doing? No, he goes over and he gives people something. Uh, he gives them hope, effectively, in the form of the Marseillaise. Yeah, and he, he leads them. Um, and yeah, he's inspirational and lead. And I do. I know Paul Heinrod was a pain, but I, I do. I think he's he's great here. I mean, he really is mm-hmm. inspiring, and you can see uh, what he works on. On the strength of that, of course, the um, they found a re- the, the Nazis then order. Cheat advise um, the, the yeah. Rick's Cafe to be closed um, Renault finds the most excellent, I th- again this is where the jokes come in with Casablanca just unexpected, um, he's ordered to find a reason to close the bar uh, he comes up with gambling at the same time his gambling winnings <laughs> are yeah. delivered to and R- Rick's actually surprised he, you know, he comes to Renault and saying you know, well, what's the reason you can't just, just shut me without a reason so he comes up with this flimsy pretext about I'm shocked shocked to find that gambling is ticking up despite the fact he spends half of the time in there uh, yeah it's it's superb but it's another example of the Germans not having a direct power yes. or they can't be seen to flex that, that direct power so even though they appear to have lost quite badly there and have had to just shut up and you know, let the the French anthem ring out. Uh, they then go to Renault and tell him, you know, you shut it down. Yeah. And then we are we're into sort of the. I mean, that's the end of the first, kind of the second. Have we had the Paris flashback by now? We have. We know that um, they what I, I think it mean to each it other. Just after this bit, maybe. Anyway, what, but, what one uh, might call the mushy bit. This is the the slightly yeah. mushier bit Doesn't where stick in the mind. So long, I mean, I, I, th- I think we've established by this point that yeah, because b- just before the Marseille scene, the, the reason Laszlo has been talking to Rick is to say, I know, I know you've got the letters, I want them. Yeah. Yes. And Rick's prepared to point... offer a lot of money. And, and Rick says, "No, ask your wife why." Hmm. And then uh, Laszlo, rather than what the f- is going on here, he, again, he's this this kind of patient, calm. He said, ask your wife. I don't know what he meant by that. Instead of, he never even asks her. He just trusts her to do the right thing mm. by giving her that piece of information. Uh, and then we have a confrontation between the the bitter and twisted Rick and Ilsa. Um, well, yeah, and- I mean, at, at this point she, she is basically making the same offer that the Bulgarian woman was being forced to make. She, she is saying, yeah, you can have me if you get him out. In effect. Yeah. Yes, kind of, and then she quite unconvincingly, and I, I always forget this happens, which is a bit telling as to the kind of emotion. She pulls a gun on, gun on him, mm. and it, um, uh, yeah, I agree. Talking it through, these are the scenes that don't quite 
convince? Why doesn't that way? convince? Because it doesn't convince Rick. That's kind of the point on it. Yeah, she's, I... she's obviously not somebody who routinely pulls a gun on people to get her yeah. get her way. Mm. So yes, she's as a, as the last resort if she can't get the um, and there's all this there's all this noble sacrifice about you know well. I, Victor will get one of just the transit thing, and Victor can't possibly do that. No, no, Ilsa will get just one way out, and you know that really it's going to be two of them or nothing. Yes, but she can't get Rick to change his mind, and he can absolutely see through her and basically say, you know, I almost fell for it and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's she isn't somebody who's going to pull a gun and go ahead. Yeah. He walks up to her, and he might as well just sort of point into the heart and say, you know, do you, do you want me to pull the trigger? Because he walks right up and says, I'll make yeah. it easy for you. Well, that is it. Uh, maybe it's, it's actually not that part that doesn't commit. It's the bit afterwards where she sort of caves. And then um, mm. that's kind of the end of Ilsa as an active character after that point. Um, and I, I find that a bit sad. Yeah. Because I, she's... So... To- she's terribly underdeveloped but yeah. in a different way than Victor Laszlo because Victor Laszlo almost it would almost be distracting if he was developed more yes you wouldn't Where, want him whereas to in Ilsa it would it would be fabulous if she it was just nice. developed a bit more yeah if, if, if she were more really of an active what... part rather than the the prize in the tug of war yes yeah. she, well that's what it. is it that's called... captured Rick because Rick isn't just you know this naif who's wandered in and and fallen for the first girl he's met he could have had Renault he could have had anyone he could still have <laughs> Renault oh he could still have Renault he, he ends up with Renault it works out. but yeah I think that's my problem with it see she calls his bluff and you know Rick quite rightly is like uh, oh sorry he calls her he bluff. calls her bluff yeah and that ends her agency basically she's got nothing left to do she then abrogates everything she's got onto him at that point and I I think that's where I, 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 I well I don't struggle a bit because it carries you along but it's pretty soon after that that we have um, oh if only I didn't love you so much and it's those kind yeah. of scenes that are a bit like oh, okay but what, now you're just telling us that and uh, we don't I, exactly as you say we don't quite understand what what is going on? It other than I mean, you can always put it down to the heart wants what it wants. It just it they do they do spell things out a lot though in films of this period, not just in Casablanca. Yeah. Very much the kind of you know, oh, I don't know why I still I love you so much or why I can't do that. You get it with the other characters talking about yeah. other things. We know that um, Renault. It depends which way the wind's blowing. Yes. He actually says that to Major Strasser when asked about his loyalties. But then, of course, when, when Strasser turns and says, you know, and what if the wind should, should change and blow the other way? Um, he doesn't sort of go, oh, well, he doesn't just shrug or something. He says, oh, you know, surely, uh, surely <laughs> Germany doesn't admit to that possibility, does it? So, you know, it's hard to think they filmed that without knowing what the ending was going to be. It's, it's incredible, clear. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it happens with, with other characters. It happens with Rick at different points. Um, that they do kind of state something that certainly as viewers now, when we've obviously got decades of different types of films presenting things in different ways, we've already seen these actors have, have already sold us on those parts of the, the character's character. Yeah. You know, we know that for some reason, and we don't know why, she desperately loves him. I for think so- you're right, and, and probably it would slow it all down and we don't need it. And I... I think it doesn't need, but it, it becomes less. I think it's were cut, and they cut huge amounts out of the play, apparently. Right, yeah. But they they yeah. chopped a lot down, and um, particularly with the editing, they they cut a lot down. So the only 
um, filmed scenes that weren't included that I've seen aren't anything to do with this and frankly wouldn't have added anything that I've seen with Laszlo when he's in detention and so on uh, I don't know of any more of the romance being explored, so I, I don't think that was really a focus. It, no. it does remind me slightly. Uh, one of the reasons I often object to comedies is that what, clearly what's happened is somebody's got the idea for the comic scene, but it's not a sketch; it's it's a full length, you know, film narrative or whatever. So, mm. so they say, right, we've got these characters, and we have to twist them out of shape to make them do this particular comic bit. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm more interested in the characters. So I, w- I would rather have the comic situation arise from who the characters are. And I'm getting the same feel with the love scene here. I mean, we, we've got mm. the script calls for love scene, but yeah. these don't feel like the people who would say those particular things to each other. No, well, we know in Paris that they've basically said, you know, no questions kind of about the past or anything like that. Again, that's actually stated and spelt out, which in a short flashback sequence, mm. fine. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you might be thinking, why doesn't he just ask her? Yeah. Uh, and then, in fact, he does ask her these questions, then it's like, oh, he said no questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but with you mentioning comedy, there are so many funny lines and funny bits with characters, and mm. none of it that I can think of particularly um, derails or or even causes the, the main tension and thrust of things to stumble yeah. because it is out of out of the characters and I'm, I'm only a poor corrupt official yeah, oh yeah. that's brilliant yeah, make <laughs> well, it 10,000 I'm only a poor mate, corrupt it's, official it's interesting yeah, <laughs> because there there were a number of writers on the on the script and I gather most of the the cynicism and the humour came from the Epstein brothers who wrote the original play, uh, the original part of it mm-hmm. but they brought in Howard uh, Cox, Cox. Uh, cock um, to or Koch, depending. <laughs> uh, but he kind of fluffed up the romance, if I can use that. Possibly, term. Um, there is actually some debate as to whether what he wrote was used. He said, right. funnily enough, it was, and other people have said it wasn't. But he did write a big chunk because the episodes right. came back. They went off to do another film. They had to and go then and do then some they returned stuff with Frank. Oh, is that what it was? Right, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, yeah, doing, doing the Why We Fight series. Right, right. So that well, they, but they returned to it, and there's, you know, I mean, anybody involved with Casablanca once it became a smash, and then its sort of reputation built over the years would clearly not want to say I didn't have that much oh, to do. To be know. honest, it, it was all this guy. Um, but I think how. Howard Koch wrote a couple of books saying about um, how much he'd done to the script of Casablanca but it is very much a different tone in parts even though it's been put together so that I'm not going to say it's seamless but it's not it's not jarring except for the Paris flashback which is a flashback (laughs) Well, that's, so that's I, again, okay. I'm all right with that. It works as a but I, the, there is a different feel, and I suppose that you know that these aren't scenes that are meant for comedy, and, and the whole thing is supposed to be. But they still I get suppose. comedy out of things like when they t- when you find out Ugarte's dead, that it, which uh, is yeah, during no, the I can't discussion whether he uh, whether, whether he committed suicide or was shot while trying to escape. I'm filling in the report now. You know. <laughs> that's not a time that for comedy, and yet, yeah. and, and it's. Mm. It's sort of, um, I mean, that just shows, every time Strasser says something that's a bit like that, it's it's purely threatening, it's yeah. malicious, it's it's totally Nazi, if you like. Yeah. Whereas with Renault, it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's his character. Yeah. I, I, well, as you say, Roger, it all comes out of their characters, and 
Well, so except the romance, except for the romance. I'm surprised we're all less convinced. I I didn't really think that watching the film, but talking it through, that's that seems the weak link for all of us. Um, I'm not. This is these are weak links in what I think is a very good film, and I, I I don't. I understand the romance in Paris. Yes. Because look at the situation. Yes. And they don't know much about each other, and they've basically agreed to say, you know what, we're just here. Let's not yeah. talk about the past because we don't know if we've got a future. It's that 18 month jump to who Rick has become, and he's become mm. this person largely because of what happened in Paris and the fact yeah. that, that she sort of jilted him. And he's still totally caught up with this woman, and that seems odd because we never get to see why. And I think, well, I think yeah, what, what we see is, is an effective tough guy who does not let himself get bitten that way. So clearly yeah, clearly he was, but why it's missing. Yeah. And as you say, it's it's like the plot has to have this thing happen. So this has got to happen, but it doesn't yeah, maybe that's why this is less convincing. Um but the plot does move on in that And it sets then... us up for a terrific ending. It mm. does. I mean it's it's narratively satisfying even if it's not quite as convincing. So then we uh we move on to Rick basically being told he has to decide what to do, so he does. He comes up with this idea. And he plays everybody. He's gonna, uh, <laughs> he plays everyone. Just a whole is... Tashira Mifune bit and plays this. <laughs> <laughs> he tells Ilsa um, to um, get to the airport with Laszlo, um, and he pulls a gun on his mate, uh, his, his bro buddy, um, uh, Renault. Um, well, if I could just throw in, before we get to the stage where he's sort of, you know, we're right up at the end there, he makes sure that all of the people that he's responsible for are taken care of. Oh, and I don't true. mean in a kind of <laughs> In way. a godfather way. He he sells... We, we've we known throughout this that Ferrari has been trying to get that cafe yep. at least for 18 months, you know, for, or from whenever it opened. Rick's would n- Rick would never sell, but he does. You know, we're told he never drinks with customers, so when he does drink with a customer, it's important. We're told he'd never sell, so when he does, it's quite clearly important. And he makes sure that Sasha and Carl and everybody else and, and Sam. Sam are taken care of completely. And Ferrari agrees and says, you know, yeah, it wouldn't be the same without them. And you know, uh, would we would a handshake? Would that be sufficient? So absolutely not. But since that's all we've got time for, it'll have to do. <laughs> So he's sold up, and he's made sure that everybody else is fine. He's, he's wrapping up those loose ends because he's not somebody who would walk away from a responsibility. And it's that's useful because it also sells you on the fact that he is doing what he told Ilsa he's going to do. You mm. know, you do go along with it. Um, the I mean, I, I still kind of believe him, um, but yes, it it sells you on the fact that clearly something momentous is happening. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, he, he's that, also worked out that somebody is going to catch a lot of blame here, and it might as well be him because he can leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's as, as opposed yes. to the people who can't. As opposed to mm. all the people who are going to be left behind. Um, we have another ex, uh, excellent one-liner from Claude Rains, which uh, this gun is pointed right at your heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. <laughs> it is just full of zingers. He doesn't just have the best hair in the production. <laughs> Certainly compared to Bogart, who hadn't really got any, so he's, he's wearing a rather... Oh, is he rubbed up? Yeah, Bogart was oh. bald. He, d- he didn't bother with, with his at all in, in personal life. Um, he wasn't he wasn't somebody who was vain about it. But uh, Claude Rains had an amazing head of hair. If you ever see him out of character and things. Uh, but yes, he get, he gets the best lines, and he delivered them 
just beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't he? Because <laughs> it's not just he's delivering this line. He's also, it's there in the eyes and everything, he's acting. This guy's pointing the gun at me, you know. And, yeah, it's this not is, just, oh, throw away one-liner. It doesn't, I, it does, just doesn't work like got that. T- I've still, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not like um, Whedon-esque quipping for the sake of it. This is straight yeah. out of his character. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, so they all uh, take a trip to the airport where upon they meet uh, well no they we have the noble scene the the problems of two guys and a girl don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world mm. although uh, sorry important bit just before this with the whole uh, bit with pulling a gun on him and so on um, uh, Rick has told Renault to call the airport Oh, that is brilliant! Yeah, I, and, and you see the other side of the phone where he's actually called Major Strasser, um, but he's convincing he's enough liar. Uh, <laughs> well, he, he just says, "Hello, is that the airport?" <laughs> and then Strasser is at the other end, going, "What? Hello? What?" what? <laughs> but he, even he eventually twigs that something's up. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a beautifully done scene. Um, and, and but that's the reason that Strasser turns anything. up at the airport, because otherwise it's like, why did he get there? But yes, he's he's been tipped off. So even at this stage, Renault is actually collaborating with the Nazis, because he could have just not done that. And even at this stage of filming, they didn't know quite how it was going to end. That's not that's not completely clear. I mean, yes, people have claimed that, but other people have claimed that, no, by the, by the time they got halfway through filming, the script was substantially complete, so... I, I think they had different endings in mind, but the idea to end it with a murder... I, the way I heard it described by the Epstein brothers in a documentary was they uh, they both turned to each other and said, round up the usual suspects, and they knew there'd have to be a murder at the end, and who was going to get murdered? Well, the audience would want Major Strasser to get murdered. Who would they want to see do it? They'd want to see Rick do it. Um, who would they want to see kind of save the day instead of drag Rick off? And it's... Um, Renault, so it all sort of slotted together. But there was I, almost a scene after that where you see Renault and Rick head off to the, uh, I think it's the French Battery. Something. That was considered as a an additional Yeah, thing. They, they did try to do this uh, later. Uh, I think that was after production was complete. They decided they took in editing to add this scene. Uh, they, they were oh, going to ha- have them... Th- um, that late, was it? Rick, Rick and Renault with a bunch of free French soldiers on the ship because Operation Torch was happening. Oh, the, so they the, were the invasion of North Africa, um, but they couldn't get Claude Rains back, and eventually they dropped it. Well, we skipped uh, the the kind of the emotional core of the film, which is Rick's <laughs> sacrifice of the woman. It's interesting we did jump, but you know we have this scene where Rick. Uh, who has to do the thinking for all of them realizes that Laszlo's so important he can't be compromised even for himself and his own happiness. Or so... he might have just suddenly thought, "Why do I hang around this woman? <laughs> why, why has she wrecked my life for eighteen months?" You know, uh, it's not how it's played, <laughs> but yes, it, it might be. Uh, it's less of an emotional sacrifice. I mean, Rello is right there. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I. <laughs> I've gone off you actually. Also, he's a very broad. accommodating sort of chap. He's very broad-minded, um, and I, that still works for me. The idea, and it's it's not really the romance; it's just the sacrifice and the nobility of it, and the the celebration of kind of virtue and hope in dark times. I mm-hmm. find that a, an uplifting message. Yeah, and that, he doesn't, he doesn't just gun down Strasser. Actually, Strasser pulls a gun as well. 
and yes. Rick has given him several warnings. Well, that might we, be we a, know it's not just a cold-blooded. It might be, but I'm it not sure that character. applies to Nazis. But yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think the hero is allowed to kill someone in cold blood generally. Yeah. Though, but it perfectly fits. Rick, we've, we've got oh, yeah. this thing. We've, we've got the the powerful scene, and this is a powerful scene of Rick saying, "No, you got to go with him." And then it's for me completely undermined by a frankly crass last thing from Rick before they go. You know, yes, Ilsa came along last night, but don't worry, nothing happened. She just tried to do this and that. And yeah. I know. So when he lies to Laszlo to basically Ooh. say, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, get, I get the point. He he doesn't want Laszlo to think that Ilsa offered herself to Rick, but it sounds so unconvincing. Perhaps exactly. this is just cynical it's modern right. me. Yeah. <laughs> Laszlo standing there going, or anything, that, if "That's what you think." That had never crossed my mind. Really. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought, but now you mention it, that does seem quite likely, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, we've seen Laszlo. You know, Renault there going, well, I would. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right. Actually, I I always thought of that as. Uh, of Rick being noble and lying, you know how you can yeah. tell a noble lie. But I think you're right; it, it's actually a bit suspicious. And the only reason Lancelot's like, "Wait, what?" Um, doesn't do that is because we know what kind of person he is, and he's like. Well, I do think a couple of elements in the in the ending when you basically just sort of in the um, kind of the office of the hangar or just the corner of it, and the, you can see the film off, uh, the plane off in the distance, allegedly. Although it's actually a small <laughs> cardboard plane with some very short actors around it to make it look like it's off in the distance. Because it's all in the back lot. Because they, they couldn't of... do that bit at the airport for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. And apparently, the fog is basically because that isn't a very convincing plane. So, like, should <laughs> we have a foggy? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Foggy gets some very short people. But in. there's the um, the bit where it just seems a little heavy handed. There's a, to my eye, clunky bit of camera work that sort of jerks which which we haven't we've seen so much smooth action camera work in this relatively um statically set film that to have a piece where nobody is sort of moving around and suddenly the camera kind of jerks as Claude Rains is pouring a bottle uh, a glass of Vichy water it's got the, the the label Vichy turned to the camera yes. and it kind of zooms mm-hmm. in and he suddenly sort of looks down at it but he's not looking at the label he's just looking at the bottle and realises you know this I think this is time for a change and he throws it in the uh, in the wastebasket and it's obviously yeah, incredibly symbolic about bit, yeah. yes he's making a change but that actual juddery bit of camera work's weird and I, yeah. I, I think it's something that they would possibly have reshot. It seems so strange to me that that's left in. Well, they did. I, again, I uh, I saw on the documentary about this final scene, um, mm. and they called again. This is the Epstein brothers saying it, but they uh, the twins and um, they were called in because they said your ending doesn't work, and and so they watched it and they said what you need is um, a moment where the police arrive um, and. Rick uh, looks at Renault um, and you know there's an unspoken agreement between them and then Renault says um, Commander uh, 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 the Colonel has been shot Major Strasser yeah. usual... has been shot round up the usual suspects and yeah without... because what what you would expect almost is for the, the, the rest of the police have arrived Rick is not in a position of any strength at all now and we've got a dead German Major here. Yeah. Now, Renault, we've seen, has been a collaborator and siding with the Germans, but not happy about it. That's yeah. been all the way through. What's he going to do? Because 
the, the Nazis aren't going to say, oh, Major Strauss is dead. Well, we won't send anyone else. You know, that's fine. I'm sure, I'm sure it was all above board. He's going to pin it on Rick because Rick actually did shoot the guy. So it's all there, ready to go. Rick's ready to be taken away. And you've got that tension. And really, you could have him being arrested. It could end that way. Well, that I, that's why I think you don't... Because that clunky, vichy water scene, I don't think you need it. I think all you need is the look between Rick and Reno. That's that why I find work. the scene clunky. Uh, I mean, because honestly, the, the vichy bit. water. Yeah, really. exactly. Now I throw it in the bin. Um, yeah, I think when you get the look, these two characters, these two actors, you know... You know how they kind of feel about each other, um, <laughs> and and you believe it. You believe that when he does it, and not only that, um, even if you don't quite believe it, it makes you feel good. You know, it is a great. Well, ending. I, I do believe it. To yeah. me, Reno remembers. I mean, at times we've seen. I think he remembers who he is. Yeah. And he's settled into this very comfortable situation where he can exploit people coming through, just like the pickpockets and everybody else does, and he can go gambling and drink the champagne and tear up the bill because he's the prefect of police Yes. so you know it doesn't really matter and he's in this, this comfortable thing but things are changing Yeah. Um, they're not necessarily looking good but it's a tipping point, he's seen a victory right there Victor Laszlo, this symbol yeah. of hope ha- hasn't just escaped but he's going on to continue the fight yeah and in fact yeah, he, says, he says to Rick you know, welcome back to the fight yeah, where I'm going, you can't follow. Well, uh, yeah. So Laszlo understands something about Rick and knows that he, yeah, he's he's been a gun runner and a freedom fighter. Yeah. And yeah. he's dropped out for a while. He doesn't necessarily know why. Uh, <laughs> I think he'd have words with Ilsa. <laughs> but, but Rick has quite clearly thought, you know what, I've been just in a bottle for yeah. 18 months. Because we know he, we know he drinks a lot. He just doesn't drink with customers. And uh, yeah, Laszlo's the catalyst for that. I get always the, the MacGuffin for it. But mm. it's it's a nice ending. I, well, it's a great ending. It's one of cinema's all time great endings. And then the last line, I think they fill the beautiful friendship. Mm-hmm. That was a later major. dub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They filmed the scene, but it was it was later dub. And that was the line that the producer ended up turning on the set up on the set for um because they had an alternative line that was something about he knew that um Renault would find some way to take personal advantage out of the situation or something which as a final line looking at it you know in retrospect even if yeah. you try and put aside what you know about that great final line and final scene i don't think the alternative line works in any way <laughs> Yeah. Well, doesn't conclude anything and then it underlines it yeah, yeah. It, he he's not actually i mean he's profiting a bit i guess but he's not yeah well uh, he's made a decision not to be that character and then to underline that he is right at the end as it spoils it a bit um well i don't that, know if if there were other little bits that were tweaked for that to fit i i i just heard about the that particular line that bogart wasn't happy with and it's a, a final point on the um uh, as time goes by, the composer, I've forgotten the name of the composer. Herman Hupfeldt, who, Herman... funnily enough, wrote one of my absolute favourite songs called Night Owl. Oh, really? Well, he. Cliff flipping... Edwards did a lovely version. He flipping hated, uh, you must remember this, and he wanted to oh, take it. Oh, no, down. sorry, two different people. 
Um, okay. Sorry, you're thinking of Max Steiner, who did the the, the actual music for Casablanca. <laughs> Um, yeah, sorry, that's my fault. The um, the person the who wrote as time, goes as time by, goes by, he uh, was Herman right. Hupfeld, and it wasn't written for the film. It was already no. around before the play. Yeah, it was published but in thirty one, I think. Yeah, he, he was just, he was a guy who he was just a guy who wrote. Um, you know, he said, "Oh my God, we're running short. We need two songs." Yeah, all right, go on. Um, that was that was Hupfeld. A knock on wood was written for the film, I think. Um, but the composer hated it slightly. He wanted to take, yep. taken out, but because there's a Loathed moment it. where Ilsa and hums it. it, and then she'd gone on to a different film and had her hair cut, they couldn't yep. refilm it, so he got stuck with the song that he didn't like, and he turned it into a fan. He makes it through the whole film. Because that and the Marseillaise become the the sort of light motifs that um, uh, that underpin everything. Yeah, because the music's amazing in this film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not of the period which we particularly have now, where music's used as sort of noise to drive the action, and accompanies everything. It swells and it swoops and it goes away. Mm. It does all those things, and it emotionally touches things just as it should do, and it keeps going back to these little references as time goes by. Yeah. It became an enormous hit. And um, it, as, it, as it's, it's never... I mean, okay, knock on wood is a bit noticeable, but um, I, I feel the soundtrack shouldn't leap out and grab me and say, this is this song, listen to it now, and it mm. mostly doesn't, which no, is, it, is it, a no. success. I mean, obviously the film never had an, an official soundtrack uh, the period, because very, very few films had oh, yeah, an yeah, actual films soundtrack back then. But, but um, m- most of it would have been available on singles, I suspect, for the, for the reason it dedicated. Well, quite a few of the songs that are included were standards anyway, and they yeah. wanted to use some others which were standards, but um, but didn't. And it's one of those films where, in many ways, you try to imagine it with a different song, or yeah. a different this, or a different that, and it's really hard to, not just because it's so familiar to those of us who watched it a lot, but because even the bits that are kind of a little awkward, and you think, well, would a different actress have, have, have done that scene better, or would someone else have been a better victim? Kind of no, because there are, there are parts of it where you can absolutely see why these people are cast for those mm. roles. And it's almost, well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, I don't think she's got enough good lines and she's underused in this part of the film and he is basically just this sort of figure you know yeah so to try and imagine some of the recasting i mean to imagine for example um Anne sheridan and ronald reagan as the two <laughs> main characters which was never really a casting decision i don't know if you they know about this press release saying that that was what they, that was who they were going to uh, use yes because Anne Sherrod and Ronald Reagan had a film to promote. <laughs> <laughs> but, quite seriously, it could have been George Raft and not mm. Humphrey Bogart. George because Raft Jack... gave his career to Humphrey Bogart because he passed on the Maltese Falcon. Um, and he passed on um, the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I think. Uh, he didn't pass on this one, though. Because no, Jack, War- Jack Warner never... wanted him for this. Yeah. Um, but... Um, Cortez, I think, had it in his contract that he could cast whoever the hell Either wanted. Either Cortez or the producer, one, I forget which one, but yes, one of them. Um, yeah, they, again... Uh, yes, might, George, are you right, it might not have been Cortez. George Roth claimed uh, that he was turned down, but if you, apparently if you check this, these uh, books in the studio, Hal Wallace was always in favour of Bogart, so oh, this yes, may be yeah, George yeah. Roth talking yeah. up his own side of things a bit. <laughs> Poor George Rath. <laughs> well, he had a decent career, you know. He did all right, didn't he? But and I no. don't, I can't see anyone handling that type of character 
as well as Bogart and still having a range within it. Because it's all very well Bogart, this sort of, you know, the tough guy who's got a bit of a heart. There's more to it with with Rick, and he's trying not Mm. to show it. I mean, there's the bit where he breaks down, which I think was probably kind of a shock to see Humphrey Bogart, even though it's only... It's a pretty early... He's uh, a very vulnerable, tough guy, uh, yeah. which is unusual for the for the period. And he used to just play heavies. I mean, he'd only done was it two or three films before this? He was in he'd Across the Pacific. The well, that before. was kind of his first, um, where he's he's the lead. Yeah. And he'd done Across the Pacific, which nobody really remembers except oh, it's a Bogart film. He did uh, Sierra the... before this. I believe. Was that before this one? Possibly. I think yeah. so. That, that's uh, the year before. They did them so fast. Yeah. The, well, there were so were many in such a short period. Imagine if he was dead in his mid fifties, wasn't he? So I mean, it's uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's another thing. I mean, although the film did quite well on release, it wasn't you know a blockbuster hit. It, it, it was helped a little bit. Awards, didn't it, I think? Yeah, oh yeah, Ford yeah. Rains was nominated, but didn't win. So it was what? nominated for eight, I think, and won three. Yes. Yeah, but it, it got Outstanding Picture, basically the Best Picture Award. And Jack Warner apparently raced to the front and accepted that, and everybody went uh, jaw-dropping, because really the producer should be picking that up. Oh One God. of the people with his jaw on the floor was the producer, who was being blocked from getting to the stage by Jack Warner's family. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and it's one of those things you think, is this actually true? And you'll never know. <laughs> but that's how it was reported. Um, yeah, yeah. The the producer never forgave Warner. He left the studio after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, had, it had eight nominations and it did win win three of them. So um, how did it become the classic we know it today? It's not entirely clear. Um, what, what I did find was um, the Brattle Theatre in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. in '57, started saying, "Well, you know." It's finals week for Harvard. Let us show yep. a, a bunch of old films that we can get cheaply, just to, just as a change of pace for people. And the one that, for whatever reason, was a great success and everybody talked about was this one. And mm. after that, they started doing it as a regular. Okay, every finals week we will show this film. Okay, and I, th- it had I, th- a good I think that was formative on a lot of people. Okay. When it actually came out, it had an extremely fortuitous thing. They changed the name from Everybody Comes to Ricks very early on. I think straight away they changed it to Casablanca, and that's fine. Called I forget the name, but there was another film of an exotic-sounding town uh, a few years before that had been very successful, and it was on the strength of that. Yeah, I mean, and it's all Casablanca as it's presented is a character in this film as well. Even yes. even if what we mostly see of it is Rick's, but it's this place that everybody is is drawn to. Well, Casablanca is also one of the places where the Americans actually turned up when they finally got involved. Um, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Um, and invaded North Africa. They one of the places they went was Casablanca, and more than that, Churchill and uh, Roosevelt, wasn't it? They had had a big sort of summit in Casablanca after that, which meant that everybody, all the newspapers and everything, was talking about Casablanca, which I guarantee the vast majority of Americans would never have heard of. And that's not being being petty or anything. Most Americans today don't have passports. They go to a lot of trouble pointing out on the globe where it is. Yeah, exactly. You don't just see a globe, you see basically a political map 
and yeah. they put a line on it to show where everything is. It's very clearly a, a geography lesson at the beginning with yeah. a, a voiceover explaining why we're going to show you what's happening in Casablanca. You know, even though that turns out to so be was bollocks, that just doesn't matter. Timing, or did they yes. rush it out to do that? Or? No, because they didn't know. Funnily enough, um, even Warner Brothers weren't told. Right, we're going to stage an invasion <laughs> of North Africa. It was luck, even though they kind of knew that something was going to be happening. Everybody mm. did, even the Germans did. They didn't know that you were going to turn up in Casablanca. There was actually Otherwise, quite a lot of deception operation with you know, suggesting practically everywhere as a possible target, specifically yeah, okay. to prevent a coordinated response. So if if they had sort of gone ahead saying, yeah, well, yeah, we know it's going to be Casablanca, then probably there would never have actually been a landing at Casablanca and Warner Brothers would have had the foot in the mouth. Uh, so it had that lucky start. It had some very good reviews. It had a few mediocre and a few bad ones, but it did actually get a really positive result. And let's not forget that it came out during the war and has that Marseille scene and is a is a film full of, of of people who were directly affected by things, and so it's a really convincing scene. And there are plenty yeah. of cinema audiences who are in a similar position. Yeah. Well, it, and it, whose whose sons have just set off from mm-hmm. you know the first wave of American soldiers has, has headed out there. Suddenly, what's going on in in this place you'd never heard of in North Africa is very important. It's a shame it doesn't look like that, and that's nothing to do with it. But the whole freedom <laughs> yes, thing exactly. is right there. But that really only explains why it got that kind of jump start. Yeah, that doesn't explain why. Well, it's more than just a, a propaganda film. I mean, it never feels like a propaganda film. That might be my Western bias. As I say, I, that, really... I, I mentioned before, there are some bits that definitely do feel like Wake Up America, it's time to fight. But yes, yeah. It, they're, well, they're, they're including the Welcome Back to the Fight. So, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. But it, it can't be the reason for its enduring... I mean, it's not the reason we watch it now, and it it doesn't feel like a big part of it. I mean, for me, uh, you know, we always end Ribbon of Means by saying, is this a masterpiece or not? And I think Mm. this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast, because I wanted to see if there were more films out there that made me feel like Casablanca does when I watch it. I I don't think... um, It's not just a masterpiece to me. It's a massively rewatchable bit of popular yes. entertainment. Mm. Yes. You've got masterclass acting going on at different points. Yes. There are bits that you can rip apart and you can point out and you can laugh at that model of whatever. Yeah. And it doesn't matter because yeah. it's the kind of thing where, oh, the set wobbled in that episode of Doctor Who, but I love it anyway. Doesn't matter. It's not about the, the you know, back projection of, of a, a river or whatever, and it's not about the model of a plane, it's about the characters. Yeah. And so we've got actors who are actually giving us characterization, mm. and that makes it work really well. And then it's beautifully edited, it's incredibly quick and snappy. Very tight, isn't it? Yeah. It's lit brilliantly. Yeah. Know? They the, could have gotten in a few old masters and said, can you just give us a hand with the lighting here? You know? There, there are a couple of things I really wanted to point up on that. One is uh, the searchlights in the street. There is mm-hmm. ob- there is obviously no diegetic reason for the searchlights in the street because you know it's it's before curfew. People are leaving quite openly. They don't okay, need they don't yeah. need to have searchlights on them. But it reminds you that there is this occupation going on. Yeah, yeah that's and point, yes. some of the searchlights that you can see were actually from the local airport. <laughs> and the the other thing that struck me, um, I went and tracked this down. Um, Ingmar Bergman's close ups. So yeah. Yes. Um, they are using uh, catch lights, 
so so there's extra reflection from her eyes. Okay. Uh, yeah. the, the, these these were known at the time as obies because they were invented for Merle Oberon a, f- a few years <laughs> earlier by her husband. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> she we almost called one of our cats Merle yeah. Oberon, you know. <laughs> Uh, visually, it's a, yeah, it's a tree. Uh, not least because uh, Ingrid Burke was it. I, it's interesting you talk about the characters. Uh, often in Ribbon of Memes, we've kind of come to the conclusion that uh, I, the characters that work best are not fully formed three-dimensional characters in film. They're mm. often more archetypal, iconic characters that are, are easier to... And, and I think that's true here as well. But it's interesting, particularly Bogart really gives Rick, without a lot of dialogue, it gives him a lot more depth, I think, than is... Than is a, there's something about his acting that mm. really gives him more than is... The Rick than is we read. get, I think, is you can see he's three-dimensional, you just yeah. can't see all of him. Yes, you, you I, see different yeah. bits at a different moment, but you never see, boom, here he is, the hero. Yes. Normally, you, you know, you see the figure and it's like, you know, Ron Ely in Doc Savage. He's the man of bronze. <laughs> yes. He's ripped yeah. shirt. Yeah. Uh, you never get that with a with a character that Bogart's doing. Whether it's you know Charlie and African Queen or or whatever, yeah. it, it's never all up front. He's he's too good for that. And I think he's probably an actor who would drop lines. I, I don't know for certain, but he's always struck me when you see his acting. A lot of actors don't like to lose out their kind of screen yeah, time because yeah. if they're not saying something it's easier to to cut that but you see somebody like Bogart and Claude Rains to an extent and yes. he's acting when he's not not sort of the character isn't doing anything but Bogart is hmm. I and you I know. think Bogart is is the Claude Rains yes to an extent though his character's more verbal and, and very believable but you see though you know that glance in the Marseillaise scene exactly, yeah. you can read a lot into that and it's I do think that is something we don't come across that often in this podcast Roger is that fair to, the performances we've seen like that um, like um, the, the one that the other one that springs to mind is um, Ruth Ellis in Dance with a Stranger she did a great job um was oh. that Miranda Richardson? Miranda Richardson mm. was one of the finest acting performances we've seen. But I, Some I, people um, have said that she was better in that than she was at playing Queenie. Yeah, it was also less than a year before she played Queenie. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, um, but I, I think uh, like Laszlo, uh, Paul Heinrich doesn't get that because he's not, you know, there's no depth really to him. And I don't think, uh, I hope it's not, Sexy. I, I don't think Ingrid Bergman really gets that. She was much younger. She mm. doesn't have as much to play with, but she doesn't have the kind of uh, depth behind her, uh, I don't feel. There is, though, um, the only other... You know, we do see a couple of female characters, but they're very much, um, you know, Rick's ex or whatever. Yes. Uh, or the the elderly German woman with a couple waiting there. They have this wonderful scene with Carl where they're, they're practicing their English and, uh, <laughs> yes. and all this. Uh, and you get these lovely little little vignettes that don't distract from things but do sort of flesh it out. But the only other um, female character we see really is that young Bulgarian woman who is in a terrible state because she's got to, you know, sleep with Renault yes. or they won't, she and her husband can't get out of Casablanca. And she doesn't sound very Bulgarian, and I only found out from you um, this evening that's because she's an American actress. She's one of the very <laughs> few Americans in there. But she has just the sort of 
kind of drippy, heartfelt, pleading, pleading kind of of, of section that she has to do. Yes. And it's, to me, the flattest acting in the whole thing. It doesn't work. I don't believe her. It sounds like it's out of a film. This was, no, also her, this was also her first film role. Yeah, and it's like, would she... You know, it's I'm not sure that... Bogart, where you said... That... It's it's all there's a lot going on behind the surface, and and that's a good contrast in her performance. It's all up all front. surface. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's she's putting her effort into the the lines. I think yeah. Um, yeah. is the best I can say about it. Now I think that if you've got Ingrid Bergman in that role, yeah. Apart from the fact she'd be massively unconvincing just because of the way she'd been cast and a bit old, yeah. she would have given a totally different interpretation of. Of those lines, yes, I think. Yeah, I think she'd have done a far better job. And to me, the thing with Ingrid Bergman is she she's not allowed to do much with the yeah, character. She, she's agree. not given anything really to work on, because with with Rick's character, he's this enigmatic, mysterious yeah. potential criminal we don't quite know. You throw that to an actor, and that's terrific. Yeah. But what yeah, what have we good. been told about Ilsa? She was nothing until she met Victor Laszlo. I mean, that's hard to work with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and you've got to immediately collapse and give all your agency to this other character um, mm. in the last third of the film. Yes, yeah. Which is hard to play convincingly, and, well, she does her best. Yeah. But though, I don't think there are many actors like Bogart who, who can do that. I, I th- it's hard to imagine it, particularly without him. But yeah, I, I I just can't see George Rafter in the role myself. But you know, well they did. Try. I'm a big there was a TV fan. show with David Soul and Scatman mm. Carruthers as Sam. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think he another actual actual musician. Um, yes, yeah, he could probably play the piano a bit better. Uh, he could certainly play the guitar and the ukulele, but I've no idea if he could play the piano. But he could he could sing. I mean, he, he, funnily enough, his real name wasn't Scatman. But then again, uh, Dooley Wilson's real name wasn't Dooley. Uh, yeah, which is, it's strange, isn't it? You've got Richard Blaine in uh, Paris, and he becomes this sort of almost hard man, Rick Blaine. Rick Blaine and yet he's played by Humphrey de Forest Bogart, and that was his <laughs> real name. And it's like, how did he end up being a tough guy? And the studio not saying, going to change the name here, Humph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me think of, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue when you said that. <laughs> um, which is no bad thing, of course. But yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's a masterpiece because, uh, and I can tell you another reason for its um, popularity, we've already spoken about, well, is it a is it a war film? Is it intrigue? Is it got comedy? Is it a romance? Well, if you've got a film that you can sit through and enjoy that's got all those elements, then you've got a film that a guy can take a girl to see, and they can <laughs> both enjoy it. And that helps films a lot, mm-hmm. because it's not just a couple. It means that women can watch it, and men can watch it, because it, it can feel pitched to both of them. It might not land 100% for each camp, but it's got yeah, enough in for the full audience. It's not yeah. just a guy's war film. And let's be honest, there were an awful lot of those about to come yes. tumbling yeah, out yeah. of the studio. Yes, that's true. There we are, Casablanca. Have, have we got anything else we want to say? Well, just in terms of enduring influence, a, a line that I hadn't particularly noticed before, I love you very much. Yes, I know. Oh, really? <laughs> I hadn't noticed that either. So I guess we can know, add George I know, Lucas um, to uh, the list of people influenced by there's this. No way yeah, well, him and Spielberg. I know that here's looking at you, kid, wasn't in the script. 
No, that was improvised, wasn't it? By uh, apparently, by it's, uh, well, it's what he he said to um, uh, Ingrid Bergman when he was teaching a poker. <laughs> Which means that that is a thing somebody says to somebody, and I've never really it's, understood the It's a line. strange thing. It's a strange line to be iconic because I don't really know what it's. Yeah. Oh, and um, but it but when, when Bogey says it, it sounds good. So exactly, yeah, I think that's why it's. Him. Well, he can tell you about the problems of three little people in this crazy world. They're about to a hill of beans. Really? But again, iconic. Um, yeah, Bugs Bunny, Carrot Blanca. Obviously, that was influenced a little oh, yes, bit. Yes. <laughs> and um, Barb Wire lifted the plot wholesale for Pamela Anderson's star vehicle, which we'll both be so, intimately familiar with. Was there a plot in Barb Wire? Uh, yeah, it was the plot of Casablanca. <laughs> and I think that just, of Barb Wire. that just goes to show how coherent and useful and actually important the plot is in Casablanca. <laughs> well, exactly, yes. Because it turns out Barbed Wire is less beloved today. Hmm. Funny that. Yeah. Although had Bogart been in the lead. I mean, uh, why why did it last? Well, also, look at the cast. You've yeah. got Bogart very much on the rise, Ingrid Bergman on the rise. So, mm. people go in, I love these people. What else did they do? It's caught up then in people wanting to, to rewatch these things. Now, obviously, that's perhaps less relevant at a time when you couldn't just get the video cassette, do the download or whatever. But it meant that you potentially, if you've got uh, a new film from one of these actors, you'll get other smaller cinemas and so on, will replay some of the old ones at times. And it so was at the era of TV was dawning when these films would start to be shown on TV, and I think that's where a lot of them yeah, became. Yeah, 10, 15 years after this, America started getting into um, you know, syndication and reruns and all sorts with TV. It was about to change everything. Now, it, it sort of became a film that almost became a Christmas film, really. It's set in December. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say there's nothing about it this Christmassy, but you got me. There we go. There we go. It's feel, but except it's feel good, and it really does make you feel good at the end. Um, Nazi gets shot. Everyone else is happy. It's good Con- considering how much the Hollywood machine would change it if it were being made today, you know, I mean, for a start, it would be about. They last made night. a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Did they make a sequel? Yeah. Oh. God. Doesn't that say a lot about it? <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, they immediately made a sequel. No, I think it was like 40 years later, somebody decided to make a sequel. Mm. But yeah, no, I mean, do you that. don't need a sequel to this. And the thing is, it's, I think it's supposed... I've never seen the sequel. I know very little about it, just that it exists, and that I never want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's inevitably when people think, oh, well, what, what do we want to make a sequel about? I think, well, it's got to be Rick and Ill, says it. No! No, actually, that those, those are the two characters done. who should not meet again. Yes. Or if yes. they do, it's perhaps, you know, at Laszlo's graveside. But I think a film like this, it's got the perfect ending. Mm. It's got a slightly weird build-up to it, but it still works. <laughs> but the fact that you've got hope at the end, yeah. these guys head off into a fog, which turns out to be nicely symbolic. You don't know if they're going to go off to die because they're heading off to war. Mm. You know, just like a lot of those people who are watching thinking, oh, my son's going off to war, or this guy sitting there thinking, I might be going off to do that next. We don't know what's going to happen to them, and I don't think we should. Mm. No, I agree. Yeah, there, there were rumours that they were going to do something with um, 
Rick, Rick in Brazzaville, maybe. Oh, that they mentioned right at the end of the the film. And may, maybe with Bogart, maybe with Sydney Greenstreet, but yeah, I don't think it ever got seriously put together. Hmm. Ah, well, it's uh, I, it's hard to imagine it catching the the lightning again. No one thought they were doing it at the well, time. Well, in two thousand and eight, there was a rumor that Madonna was setting up a remake. On the other hand, this could just have been made up to get at Madonna. So you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, uh, a wonderful film, certainly in my top periodic top three to one, whatever I'm in, uh, whatever <laughs> mood I'm in. But it is, it fits my definition of a film. That I could watch again. I could watch the end credits and then start it again and not feel particularly. Very hard to turn that. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I often watch ribbon of meme films in sort of thirty minute bouts because of uh, like, and I started this one and then just watched the whole thing and it didn't feel like a particularly <laughs> long time to do it. I'd just like Lovely to point stuff. out in passing, a French 75 is two parts gin, one part lemon juice, one part syrup, fourth parts champagne. I do highly <laughs> recommend them when you don't have to walk anywhere afterwards. <laughs> oh, that, that that was a cut scene. Was um, one of the uh, oh, it's one of the, one of the Germans, and he he's goes up to the bar and he says, "What are you doing, Sasha?" He says, "I'm making a, I'm trying a new um, drink." And he goes, oh, I'll take it. And he, he knocks the whole thing back, turns around, sort of opens his eyes wide, and just falls to the floor. Yeah. Uh, um, Comedy drunk pratfall. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> fit at all. And then beside him, a guy uh, looks at the, the bottle in his paper bag and <laughs> drops it in the bin. <laughs> Almost. I mean, yeah. It's... Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you see a cutscene and you think, what were you doing with, with you leaving thinking? that out? Whereas this one, it's very much, who actually thought that was going to work? Oh, well. I should have cast well, the there box. Did the producer's kid get at the camera? <laughs> <laughs> no, that happened in Game of Thrones. Um, well, on that bombshell, I think we'll wrap up this. Uh, I think Which it's is about 35 miles away by the sound. It's it's been a uh, a long old <laughs> it's been a long old episode, but a good one because mm. it's worth it. Um, thank you very much for joining us, John. It's yeah, been cheers. lovely. Thank you very much. I'm I'm always happy to completely blow your schedule just by talking without taking a breath. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> I have no idea what time it is. Uh, good grief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've waffled up how, for a while. How long are these well episodes normally? Oh, usually an uh, hour plus or minus. Yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> This was a special edition. Whoopsie. Um, we must do <laughs> this again sometime. Yeah. <laughs> and shorter. <laughs> well, some of the modern films, there's just less to say about them, let's face it. Uh, yeah. 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 There's a reason this one we're talking about 70 years later. Um, 80 years later. Uh-huh. Eight. Is it 80 yeah. years this year? Yeah. Bloody hell. Well, there we go. I was going to end on a quote, but again, there's, there's nothing quotable about Casablanca. So. No, I mean we've established that the script. If it if it had been written by just one guy and nobody else had touched it, I'm sure it would have worked. If only Joss Whedon had got to it, it would have been much better. <sighs> can you imagine Joss Whedon's Casablanca? <laughs> Actually, the tragic thing is you probably can. I can. Well, for a start, that's... presumably also gets shot. <laughs> 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 Not before kicking someone, presumably. Anyway, there we go. Yeah. That was a sad Better let you guys get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
Good night all and Merry New Year to anyone have listening a... to this before New Year. Yes, have a have a wonderful time, all of you, and remember we'll always have Paris. <laughs>